Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Paul Rowlandson. Paul is currently the Deputy Director of Learning for Trinity Academy Trust. He's an experienced secondary maths teacher, one of the leads for the White Rose Maths Hub, and he delivers a load of training workshops for teachers all around the country on the likes of bar modelling and questioning. Now, whilst Paul may not be a household name like some of my other guests, such as Dylan William, Dan Mayer or Bruno Reddy, in my opinion, he flipping well should be. And that is not just because he's from the North. Well, not entirely anyway. Paul is an expert in some of the areas that listeners have most requested we cover on this podcast, including bar modelling, questioning, Shanghai and advice for teachers delivering CPD. He also speaks very open and honestly about lots of aspects of teaching and planning that I hope you can all relate to. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. What is the first thing Paul thinks about when he's planning his lessons, and how has this approach developed over his years of a teacher? We delve deep into bar modelling, looking at its strengths, its weaknesses, whether you can just dip into it for certain topics, which type of students the approach works best for, and in a world first for the podcast, we even get a bit interactive as Paul takes us through a couple of bar modelling scenarios. So get yourself a pen and some paper at the ready. We look at what makes a good question, and Paul discusses his research into questioning, including what common mistakes that teachers, including myself, I have to admit, often make. What did Paul learn from his trips to Shanghai and Tokyo, and how has it changed his approach to teaching? What advice does Paul have for teachers running training sessions for other teachers? What has made the White Rose Maths Hub so successful and what are some of the best free resources it has to offer for maths teachers? As I say, look, I'm biased as anything, but I genuinely think this is a fascinating discussion with loads of practical tips and food for thought. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, just a quick reminder that we've got a load of free daily revision streams available at Diagnostic Questions in the build-up to summer maths exams. So whether your students are preparing for the Key Stage 1 or Key Stage 2 SATs, and the questions there, I should say, have been provided by Paul's very own White Rose Maths Hub, whether it's the brand new GCSE, the Legacy GCSE, the IB, or even Welsh Numeracy then we've got a revision stream just for you. Head over to diagnosticquestions.com forward slash streams or click the link in the show notes to find out more. And just the usual plea, if you enjoy these podcasts, then I'd really appreciate it if you could spend a minute just to give them a quick review on iTunes. And also, it'd be great if you could share them with your friends and colleagues. They've been known to help making paving the driveway and being stuck in traffic a bit more tolerable, as well as sending crying newborn babies to sleep. Not my original intention for them, I'll be honest with you, but I'll take what I can get. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Paul Rowlandson, and with it, the sweet sound of two Northerners in conversation. I really hope you enjoy the interview, and as ever, I'll see you on the other side. OK, 
Okay, Paul, so let's start as ever with your math speed dating question. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, well, my favourite number is, and has been for a long time, uh, 152. <laughs> right, go on. Go I'm not on. quite sure. I don't want to really share the reason why, though, honestly, Craig. Uh, well, back in back in the the late 90s, early 2000s, when when teletext was still around, and CFAX, which was like a um, like a prehistoric version of the internet, where you used to look up uh, cinema listings, and rather than typing a website, you were typing a, a page number. Well, 152 was the page number for a quiz called Bamboozle. Yes, you're absolutely right. Hey, flipping heck, this is this is a uh, yeah, bringing back all the good memories. <laughs> I used to play that every day. Uh, first thing I do when I got home from the school was put on bamboozle. I could never get any <laughs> any, any any answers right, uh, but I loved it. Apart from Saturday because that was the children's version, I was okay with that one. But I, I used to love playing it. And uh, yes, yeah, so after typing 152 in the teletext, pretty much every day the number stuck. I think they changed the number um, and I changed the channel a couple of times. But the time I played it the most was 152. I'm very conscious that Dylan Willing give you like a very sort of uh, mathematical and academic reason for his favourite number, but that's, that's that's the best I've got, I'm afraid. Sorry. That is fantastic, and that's right because with if my memory serves me right, when you add to it's like multiple choice, right? And when you had to vote on an answer, it took flipping ages for the page to load. And if you'd got it wrong, you were there a good kind of two or three minutes waiting to get back to that question. If I remember, yeah, and if you got quite savvy, you, you'll notice what um, cause it changes the page number at the top when you vote. You figure out which ones took you to the next question, which ones took you back to something you start with. So just keep pressing buttons quick as you can until you get. I kind of, uh, I didn't really do it the way that the quiz intended, but um, I, I enjoyed it nonetheless. That's great. I mean, that is over the heads of our younger listeners. But Google, <laughs> Google bamboozle will be my advice there. <laughs> superb answer, superb answer that, mate. Well, question number two: What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Uh, as a student, I really enjoyed um, solving equations uh, because they were like. They're like puzzles to solve. And I, I quite enjoyed that, really. Um, but they, they were logical and you could do them with different methods. Uh, but you could be quite creative, really, with your methods. But all the time you have to think about what you're doing and, and laying things out. I, I quite in, enjoyed uh, that, that logicness to it, really. I'd, I'd sort of When you had the equations like, let's say, 2x plus 7 equals something, I used to sort of liken it to unwrapping a Christmas present to get get rid of the seven, get rid of the two, just try and figure out what's inside. And uh, yeah, I just I just quite like. I, clearly, as a child, I didn't I didn't really want for much really, just <laughs> just answers. I wanted out of life, but um, I quite I really quite like that uh, sort of puzzle side of it, particularly when there's X's on both sides. And then more more than anything, I, I used to love solving simultaneous equations in particular because you had two there and. <laughs> you, know, you had to just subtract one thing from the other or add them together. It, it, that was probably my favourite thing to, as a student to to learn, definitely. Nice. Bamboozle and a couple of equations. You're a happy time. <laughs> <laughs> and has that transpired to be one of your favourite topics to teach as well, Paul? I think it's um, it's, it's probably, yes, uh, in many ways. In that it's the one I probably feel most confident and comfortable teaching. I think um, whenever um, you're having a bit of a bad week and you need to resort to something you feel very safe doing i think equations are something but i i quite enjoy the other aspects really i, I usually what's whatever i'm teaching but I, I quite enjoyed probability for a while when i was first starting as a teacher and i got into more into geometry a bit later on um but yeah i, I do definitely enjoy uh solving equations teaching and, and as a student got it superb and final question for this speed dating is what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher um well it's, it's hard to uh, if I wasn't a maths teacher, I would be a teacher of a different subject because it, it, it's really the only career that I've ever considered since uh, about the age of four years old, really. 
Um, I, I haven't really given many other things a bit of a lock in. I think when, when you when you're four, you see the world through quite naive eyes. And uh, I wasn't the brightest four year old. And at that point, when I first started reception. The, the only adults I ever really interacted with were people I saw as parents, like my parents or my, my friends' parents, or my, my uncles and un- aunties and uncles were my cousins' parents or the teachers. Uh, so I just deduced that you, you grow up and become either a parent or a teacher. <laughs> I thought I didn't want to be a parent, so I'll be a teacher. Uh, I could figure it out. Like, just four and a half, I was on the gate. Uh, but I never really thought about any other careers. So, like when I sat in lessons, I used to um, sort of think if I was a teacher in that class, what would I do differently? Uh, how would I deal with students? And when I was in high school, I wanted to be a high, uh, science teacher and a drama teacher. And I went to sixth form, I wanted to be an English teacher, and I chose my co- options according to that. But I enjoyed maths and became a maths teacher. Uh, so if it wasn't a teacher, sorry, it wasn't a maths teacher, I would be a teacher of drama or primary teacher or something like that. If I wasn't a teacher altogether, I don't really know what I'd be if I'm on this Craig. Uh, I'd probably something like a driving instructor or something, something <laughs> similar like that. Nothing really has ever taken my interest uh, other than that. I'm sorry. Um- and what is it? What is it about it that, that grabs you? Is it the interaction? Is it kind of imparting knowledge upon others? What What, what do you love about it so much, Paul? I think it's 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 a bit of a, it's a very sociable job. It's it's not one where where you are sat uh, on your own a lot of the time, um, uh, which is probably not really for, well, not really for me. Um, and it's creative, but at the same time, it's there's a lot of advice and guidance about what makes things work better than others um and you can get very analytical about teaching uh, it's 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 almost like a little bit of a bit of a hobby i suppose in, in many ways uh, i did drama gcse uh, which i loved and i, I could sort of quite like the the performing aspect of it i suppose uh but mostly the you, you can you can sit at, uh, in an office and churn away at, in numbers and uh, not necessarily get much out, I suppose. You can you can do, I, I, I guess, but you can see a big difference with teaching, and you can you can feel the fruits of your labours, uh, and and with yourself and your, your students and your colleagues. And I think it's a very rewarding job, but it's also a very fun job as well at the same time, and, and challenging too. And it's it's the challenge is good in that sense. Got it. Fantastic. Well, let, let's move from that then to, to your career. Can you just give us a bit of background, Paul? So start at any stage you want in your kind of childhood or uni or whatever. <laughs> just, to, just talk us through to how you got to where you are today and what, what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, sure. So when I was uh, at uni, I did a maths degree. Uh, I've considered it a maths teaching or maths education degree, but I, I did want to keep my options open just in case I change my mind at the age of 21. Uh, but I, st- I did lots of things like uh, mentoring um, at, at school down the road, uh, did some volunteer work in various places as well and work experience in schools to uh, not necessarily to just get up a good CV, but to equip myself, I suppose, uh, ready for PTCA. Went straight from master degree into PTCA at Leeds University and then uh, got my first job uh, at a high school in Harrogate, uh, which I worked at for a few years as a full time classroom teacher. And I used some of my credits from a PGCE to do a part-time master's degree in teaching uh, alongside my, a job. So I did that uh, from a second to my, my fourth year of teaching. Uh, when I, I was at, uh, at the school in Harrogate, my goal was to become an AST. Uh, I wanted to do the job. I wanted to get the AST status, but I also wanted to do the job of an AST where you'd work some time for the uh, local education uh, authority. Um, but the school worked that didn't really have those. They had people who had the status but didn't really do the job. So 
the Trinity Academy Halifax advertised this for a lead teacher, which I, I saw as being a, a good stepping stone between here and, and, and AST. And it was luckily it was my old NQT mentor who's, uh, who runs our maths club, Tony Staniff. He had moved to Trinity Academy a year earlier and was the head of maths there. So uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity. It was someone I knew there as well. And it was the, the school was at the start of they have only been open for uh, technically as Trinity Academy for a year. So it was, it was a really quite exciting uh, opportunity to be part of a journey uh, with, with the school. Uh, and that's where I've been since. After being a lead teacher for a couple of years, I became uh, assistant head, uh, principal uh, for teaching and learning, uh, where Lyon managed the lead teacher team and looked after CPD for the school. Um, and then as Trinity became a teaching school and a maths hub, it made sense to me to start working with the CPD for those things. So I, I, I deliver CPD, I also coordinate other people delivering CPD for the teaching school maths hub. And now we're a multi-academy trust. Uh, so I, I think my role is deputy director of learning. Uh, still underneath Tony Staniff, who's now the director of learning. Uh, so we do all those things, but we also support schools across the uh, multi-academy trust as well. Flipping heck, geez, <laughs> that's a that's an exciting one. And you just again for for the benefit of people who don't know, AST um, Advanced Skills uh, Teacher. That, that's what that's what I um I became after a few years of teaching. And I don't know if you agree with me, Paul, but it, it's a flipping crime that 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 doesn't exist anymore. It's it's such a great route for teachers who who want to stay in the classroom and want to help and support other teachers. And it, yeah, it breaks my heart that that isn't. A kind of a viable route for a lot of teachers these days i don't know what your thoughts on that are no absolutely uh when i, when I was on pgc and you heard about all the different the different uh, career routes you can take head of math sounds great but i i, I kind of i didn't want to what i liked about ast was it was very much focused on teaching uh very much and in, in, in the classroom it wasn't taking time away from teaching to do important important things like curriculum management and, and things like that but it was very very focused on developing teachers and luckily a lot of schools now have things like lead teachers which yes. kind of do that job within within the same school and with teaching schools and multi-academy trust and things like that it is opportunity now to do a similar role to the AST but because there's other schools joined together but yeah I was quite quite gutted when they did get rid of the AST really. Got it. Superb. Well, um, if we can move now to, to the planning kind of stage of this, because um, I'm always fascinated by how guests put lessons together. So if you can pick either a topic or a series of lessons, whatever's easiest, and just basically, Paul, just take us through the planning process from, from start to finish and then what the actual lesson looks like. And I'll probably annoyingly interrupt you at numerous points just to dig deeper into things, if that's <laughs> all right. So so if talk us through the topic, talk us through the kind of class that you would pitch this to and then just take it from there, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, I, I don't really uh, plan lessons as such. I, I tend to sort of plan entire units or, or sequences in, in, in one go. So let's take a topic like GCSE probability trees, which I just finished doing with my 11s uh, last week. And the first thing I'd, I'd think about would be all what are all what is, what's the, the end goal, I suppose, that topic? What is it I want, I want students to achieve or be able to do by, by end of it? And with, with GCSE classes, something quite pragmatic, like being able to um, be fully equipped for, for a GCSE in that topic. And then I would think about all the little things that a student would need to uh, provide them with a, a complete and deep understanding of that topic. And what are all the tiny steps that students would need to, to take to reach that goal? And I'll try and make these steps as specific and as minute as possible so take the, the example of probability trees one small step 
would be for them to learn what probability trees actually do and uh, how to draw them and how to interpret them. Putting probability to one side, literally, what does the, the diagram mean and how do you read the diagram, I suppose? Another small step might then be looking at how to put the probabilities onto it, onto the tree. And if there were uh, independent events, how would you combine the uh, the outcomes? For example, getting a red and then a red, for example, if it was about marbles and a bag. Uh, another step might be to how would this change if there are dependent events? Another step might be if, uh, if how to calculate the probability of more than one thing, for example, at least one red. Uh, you'd have to get your red, red and red, red and uh, red, green, etc. And then uh, you get, uh, yeah, those sorts of things really make up the steps. And then, and can I can I just ask at that stage, Paul? Are you are you literally writing these steps down somewhere? Are you recording them somewhere? Is this just kind of all in your head at the moment? Depends where I am. Uh, if I'm at work uh, in a classroom, I tend to jot things down on a piece of paper or on the planner. If I'm in the car, <laughs> I tend to sort of do it in my head. I've, I do a lot of planning, I suppose, in the car um, or, or when I'm driving home from work, thinking about things to go, uh, things the next next week and stuff. But, yeah, I tend to sort of jot these down as bullet points or or, or, um, uh, or, or maybe as, as like a contents page on a slide or something like that, really, wherever I can jot, jot the ideas down, I suppose. Got it. Fantastic. OK, so you've got this list of these kind of micro steps that, that you want kids to do. What, what happens then? Well, I think the next is probably the thing about what order they go in. Uh, it's not always the order that you come up with and think about what, what things lead to what else. And then within each step, uh, I think about what questions I could pose to the students uh, in, in that step. So but rather than setting them 20 similar and repetitive questions for each step, I try and think about how many different variations uh, I, I can question students on that particular aspect of, of the topic so that that first step i mentioned earlier i think was um about just drawing probability trees uh so here we're putting the probabilities to a side it's about in, the interpretation and what, what the the diagram does in that sense one one question might be about you know if, if i know that a bag contains some red marbles and some green marbles and taking out two marbles how do you draw a diagram that allows you to see all the different possible com uh, combinations of those outcomes and then, you know, think about how do we then interpret that, what that diagram means? And then what would, it, what would that diagram look like if I changed the context? Would the light diagram look different if it wasn't marbles, for example? Well, what happens if rather than picking out two marbles, I picked out three marbles? What happens if rather than there being two marbles in a the bag, there's three marbles in a bag? Or, or what if actually we know that there's, if we know there's red marbles, there's some red marbles in there, but there's only one green marble, how would that change the tree uh, after I picked out the first marble, for example? Trying to think of as many different scenarios that could come up uh, for that students have to draw a tree uh, and, and so so it's not just the same two and then two branches off each one every single time really and they can just work on that side of the design of the tree side of things before they start then learn the next step the next step the next step after that well this, this is fascinating this i think well the first thing to say is that's often certainly from my own personal experience when, when i'm delivering it that that's an, an area i overlook you kind of almost assume that kids know what the tree diagram means and how to interpret it and so on but if they don't have that baseline knowledge you, you know you're wasting your time with everything else that goes off it so i think firstly that that's fascinating and secondly i wonder if we kind of just jump a little bit ahead to you've got these questions all planned out when when you're actually delivering the lesson here say we say it's one of the first lessons on tree diagrams and you want to get the students understanding the diagram itself and interpreting it and so on 
what are you actually doing with these questions, Paul? Is are these um, are you just asking these as kind of whole whole class questions, and they've got the mini whiteboards out? Are they written down somewhere? How are you actually delivering these questions to the kids? So there might be uh, one question or two questions that we do as a class, uh, and we explore. I tend to get them to explore these sorts of things as they're getting ideas together and trying to form ideas. Get them to talk about these things in pairs. A lot of things that we might do on mini whiteboards, and then and have little quick thirty second chats, and then we, we report back, and we will do something add a bit to the board and then propose another question you have another 30 second 30 second chat but we're still talking about the same example when i say question i mean sort of more the verbal questions in between there really and then after we've done a couple i'm really dissected the the question the example we're doing on the board i might do two uh, uh, but then set them four or five uh, similar questions sorry not similar four or five questions but put what they've just learned to the test in different ways. That's where the variations might come in. Uh, each one be subtly different. This is stuff I, I, I tend to have. This is not what I've done all my career. I think things have changed quite a lot over the last few years, particularly since uh, I've been to Shanghai and learned about Shanghai, which I know you will talk about a bit later on. Uh, but then we might stop and look at the answers to those ones and talk about why is this question different to this question? How does it change from here to here? And then we'll look at the next step or scenario and, and move on that kind of way. And this might take a few lessons, really. Once these steps are put in put in place and the questions are drawn out, uh, only uh, only then really. Do, uh, well, also you think about the misconceptions as well, and think about what are the likely things that students might misunderstand about this topic, or what happens if um, it's, if it's if, what ways could it be presented that would throw the students? What are the, what are the things that usually cause a bit of a sticking point? And that's why I spent a bit of time on just interpreting diagrams, because usually they were fine at multiplying fractions, they're fine at adding fractions. But the thing, usually what held them back a little bit was knowing why, why they're doing those things, I suppose. And then I'd even plan out the verbal questions as well, that I'm, or at least two or three key verbal questions that will make a big difference. Whether even trying to flush out a misconception, what can I ask to, to flush that misconception out? What can I ask to try and... Uh, get students to see why it's the misconception. Then once all that's done and I've got the, the content for the next however long I'll spend, then I'll probably cons- think about how to fit it into neat packages and to, into, into hour long lessons um, uh, and how, how, how that fits together. And that sort of God. develops. Uh, sorry, go on, Craig. No, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, because, uh, again, questioning something we're going to come on to in a bit more depth later on. But I'm just fascinated at this stage. What what would be some of those questions you'd ask to tease out the misconceptions? Would you, would you have an example of, of a couple of those? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think one one might be, for example, uh, the, the one where it says it takes two marbles out. It doesn't say it takes one and then another out. He says it just says it takes two marbles out. And quite often... Uh, when I've seen students in the past, they they reduce the, the denominator by two, for example, and the yes, numerator by yes. two. And uh, rather than waiting until that scenario came up, came up, we talked about we looked at that then at the very start without the probabilities, and asked the students why why, why is it different to the, the previous ones? And that t- tends to be a question that will tackle some many misconceptions. What makes this different to the ones that you're already comfortable with? What makes it a little bit more tricky? What what word is it, or what what aspect of it? And then once once the students can pick out what it is that makes it different, then we can talk about what can we can do about it. Even when students are working on the work independently, when they get stuck and they put their hand up uh, and they say, "Sir, I'm, I'm stuck," 
usually the first question I'd ask was, what makes this question different to the other three that you did earlier? Right. Why is that bit causing you a, tro- a problem? So that bit's the bit that's causing you a problem. What could we do about that bit in particular? And that, that can help students think about what causes a misconception or what, what causes a, a, a struggle, I suppose, in, in many cases and get, and get past that. Yeah, I think you're right. This this is chiming very true. Um, I, my year 11 class last year, I, um, just talking about probability, I had a girl called Katie in that class. She was a very, very bright kid, um, get, targeted an A, got, got her A in the end. But tree diagram she had a flipping nightmare with. And specifically, whenever it said they take out two balls at the same time or two marbles at the same time, she just could not get her head around that concept at all. And again, I didn't pick up on this until maybe two or three lessons into the series. And then it became apparent that Katie and a couple of the others had, had this problem with, with just the concept of it. Like you say, not, not multiplying the fractions together, not knowing which, no problem knowing which branches she was interested in, but just the concept of, of taking two out at the same time. And I think that this is the key point. And this, this is one thing that has really kind of dominated my thought process over the last few years. In my, I knew that Katie's only problem with tree diagrams was that one concept. But in Katie's head, because we were three lessons into tree diagrams, she couldn't do the whole of tree diagrams. Her confidence had gone in the in the topic. She thought she was rubbish at tree diagrams. Whereas if I'd have done what you're suggesting here and and tackled all those potential misconceptions at the very start, just to make sure that the concept itself was secure, then you can move on and start to build this new knowledge in your kids rather than discovering problems further down the line and then the kids thinking that they can't do any of it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It's hard to come up with what the misconceptions might be until you've you've had a crack at it a few times i suppose yes. as a teacher and um but it's even useful in my, in my opinion to sometimes present the misconception even if the students have made it and think and say to them you know quite often in the past when i've taught this in my class they've often said this or, or, or yes. whatever why do you think they say that and um this isn't this is a shameless plug to, to create but i can't think of all misconceptions but one thing i find particularly useful about diagnostic question is that you can read all the students misconceptions and sometimes yes. you see ones you think oh i haven't thought about that yeah but then you think oh yeah they have done that before so sometimes i'd use those to say you know how have this many students said this last year? Why do you think they said that? Yes. And by discussing that, we can we can get a, a solid understanding of why that's not the case and why we do the thing we, the things that we do. Well, it's, again, this 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 is interesting because it'll be no surprise that I'm obsessed with with misconceptions. But there's a, there's an argument against this that I often come up uh, come up against. And in, in fact, you mentioned Tony Stanniff earlier on. Me and him had a, a slight disagreement. It was all amicable um, about about the use of misconceptions because I'm 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 in favour like you of confronting these head on, even if the kids haven't made them, showing them the misconceptions and saying, look, this is this is something a past student's done. What do you think of this? Where where have they gone wrong? What advice would you give to that student blah 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 but tony's point and i've heard this many times is that doesn't that increase the chance of the kids making that misconception if if that's the thing they remember from the lesson is the example that you showed and it just so happens that was a wrong example or that was a mistake what, what's your answer to that paul uh, i think there's a, there's a bit of balance you, you got to know your students and you got to know whether or not it's the right thing to do i suppose is, is the most important thing and whether or not they would they would just remember what you've what you've the misconception or it would just confuse them i think at the end of the day it's, it's a bit of a judgment call based on the teacher knowing the students well and knowing actually whether or not this would be something that they're likely to do also there's a lot of misconceptions that students could make and we don't have time to go over them all but if there's a key one that you think students might make this misconception even if they got it right the first time 
next time they do it or next lesson or next week, it's probably likely they might make someone might make this one. Let's let's talk about this key one. I think that that could be important. But Got down it. to the students more than anything else and, and what you know of them, really. Got it. Fantastic. So if we, we jump back into your lesson then. So we've let, let's say that we're, we're still on this kind of introduction lesson to tree diagrams. We've um, you, you're getting all the concepts secure and um, you've set you've done gone through a couple of examples together with the kids and then they're working uh, working on their own questions. And um, are they are they working on their own? Are they allowed to speak to each other? What's the kind of classroom dynamic that's going on there, Paul? Uh, I, I don't necessarily just discourage them from speaking to each other. Um, I, as long as they're not just chatting about neighbours or, or telling, <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm always happy for them to help. I think if they get stuck, especially when you can see one's one's you know do the person person stuck and the person next to them clearly gets it. You know, that's be nice to each other a little bit. Uh, but they tend to have a bit. Of, you know, they have times when they can dis- where, where they are asked to discuss things, and they have t- and they don't, and they have times when they're asked <laughs> not to discuss things. They do. Uh, but yes. <laughs> you, usually there's a, a yeah a little periods of paired work that's when we work stuff as a class and then when they're doing the question they tend to be doing on their own in the books but there's nothing wrong with them helping each other out in, in, in that sense so long as they're not telling each other the answers um they, they are and they get, the students get quite good at this at saying explaining things to each other rather than rather than just saying it's 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 five or, or whatever the answer is got it and and what about you mentioned their answers what what kind of assessments going on in this lesson how do the kids know whether they're getting things right or not uh, when when they work it well, there's the bit there's the bits I suppose are mini whiteboards, but that's not necessarily about thing getting things right or wrong. It's about developing an idea, I suppose. When they're doing the independent work, I'll I'll, sw- I'll sweep around the classroom and look at what you know what they're doing and and talk to the students. And if a if a C student has made a mistake, I won't necessarily tell them. I'll, I'll just say you know have another think about that, will you, please? Or yes. point to that, or etc. And then after the, the, most people, when when people are starting to finish the four or five questions. I put, I put them in order of priority as well. The ones I, want, I definitely want to do being, being first. And um, once people have, some people have started to finish the last question, we will go over the answers to, to a few of them and then we'll move, move on, etc. Or we will repeat things or, or give them time to do corrections or, or whatever, really. But there's ongoing feedback, either individually or to the class regularly throughout the lesson. Got it. Fantastic. It sounds like a lesson observation I'm giving you. I'm not, I'm not, not <laughs> grilling you. I'm trying not to grill you too much. And what, what about what about the end of the lesson? What what, what happens there? At uh, the end, um, it depends really what happens in, in the main part of the lesson, I suppose. I don't really have a, a fix. I have a very, a very, very fixed routine for the start of the lesson, and, but not necessarily for the end of the lesson in, in many ways. Uh, it might be sometimes it is... An, it's right to wrap things up and uh, get thing get students to really really focus on the on the key points and uh, what they've learned from the lesson and and we might uh, either discuss those verbally or get them to just jot down a little thing to himself you know step by step by step what you do or or what's the key thing etc it might be um uh, it might be them applying what they've learned to uh, it might be the same questions that you've, they've done but it's it's a GCSE one now and I know that they can hack it or if I'm feeling particularly cheeky and I know that the uh, it, it, it's it's right thing to do, sometimes I might pose for them the next the question that I'm going to start with the next lesson and just not ask them to necessarily answer it and get an answer, but just talk to each other about why is this question different to all the other ones we've done and what might help you in tomorrow's lesson when we come back to this. And that just gives them a little a little teaser trailer really for the next lesson. 
<laughs> got it superb and you, you mentioned you you have kind of a fixed routine at the start we, we didn't talk about that so what, what how do your lessons start paul um so every every it's, it's changed over the years and when i was in qt i would line the students up every lesson and bring them in and once they settled uh, i would I'd do a start with them and i i think that's that's a, that's a good thing to do but it, i it didn't quite work uh, for me in my second year because i had a classroom which is in a pavilion, an old cricket pavilion on the edge of the field, so students didn't arrive <laughs> together. It used to take about five minutes to walk from the, the main part of the building. To, so I had to change the routine around a little bit. Uh, so, and I've stuck with it since, really. So I, I wait for students at the door and I greet them at the door, but as they arrive, they come in one, as they arrive, pretty much. I also find it easier as well to settle one student down at a time than I do to try and settle 30 students down when they walk in together. And usually when they come in, uh, or nearly always, there'll be some questions on the board. I ask them to uh, open the books and do them in the front of the books. I think if they, personal opinion is if students do them in the back of the books, they sort of value them less in, in, in some sorts of way. So they do it in the front of the book. Uh, they put the date. The title at this point is always Star Trek Activity um, so that they don't have to ask them what the title is. They know that's the title. And they sit down. And while I'm still, still stood at the door, they are writing the date and title and answering the four questions or three questions from, from the board. It tends to be four questions. I didn't know I did this until students had said, why do you ask four questions? <laughs> and are those questions directly related to the topic that's coming up or are they randomly chosen or do they relate to the previous week? How do you pick those questions and where do you get them from, Paul? Usually, they do, usually I just write them if, if I'm honest with you most of the time uh, and it might be for different purposes. So, for example, it depends on what matches the lesson in. So sometimes the questions on what they did last lesson in particular, particularly if it blends, leads right, very nicely into today's lesson. Or it might be on some old skills that they haven't done for a while, but I want to use them in this lesson at some point. So I want them to recall it and get it and get it to the top of their heads again. So they've, they've got it ready for later. If we're revising or we are preparing for an exam or something like that, maybe one, maybe one question will be on what they did yesterday. One will be what they did last week. One will be what they did last month. And one might be on what they did in the previous year. So it sort of keeps things ticking over in that sort of way. Um, my favorite sort of ones, the ones where you pick a, you pick a topic that seems quite random compared to the lesson, but has a, quite a nice link to it so it's gone away from probability trees but let's say the main part of the lesson is about similar shapes and they're going to find missing lengths on similar shapes and i know that the example of what i want to do with the students in the, in the main part will be a small rectangle a big rectangle a small rectangle's got a length of three and five centimeters and a big one's got a missing width and a and a length of 20 centimeters and they've got to find the missing width um in the start i might give them a question on equivalent fractions where they've got to find a missing number and equivalent fraction. One fraction is three over five, and the other one is something over 20. And then nice. later on, when we do the question on um, similar shapes, after we've got to the end of it or partly through, I might say, how does this question relate? Does this question relate to something what we've done earlier? How does it relate? And usually students start off by saying, well, the numbers are the same. But after that, they, <laughs> they, can, they think a bit more about it, and they can see actually the method is pretty much the same, really, and how you get from one number to the other. And that, that those links between different topics are, are quite are quite priceless, really, because how they see what they're doing with similar shapes is pretty much what they do with 
equivalent fractions, pretty much what they do with with currency questions and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I always feel a little bit proud of myself when that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And can I ask, just before we move on from, from this planning uh, phase, just because it comes up all the time on the podcast and just in conversations I have with teachers, can I just ask about marking and just what what's your take on it or what's um, what's the policy at your school and how much how much do you do like a week or or every two weeks or whatever and do you have any tips of of how to make it manageable and how to make it effective paul uh well our school policy is that it's quite it's, it's i think it's a very reasonable policy uh books are uh or students work should be marked at least at least no 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 longer than three weeks since they since they did the work uh preferably earlier but that's kind of the the maximum amount of time to to leave work really and uh we uh, have f- uh, written feedback sort of marking that we have www what went well and even better if and that's more so a structure to ensure that there's a a, a balance and just provide a bit of guidance to teachers for the um the, the sorts of things to write i think when it comes to mass marking the main thing, I, I probably change my idea every year about what, uh, uh, what I'm going to look for, but the main thing I always go back to is what will make a, make a difference to the students and what will, what will help improve the students, really. And it might be that um, it, it's, if, the, if students have made calculation errors and it's just a, it's a slip of the pen or, a, or whatever, and it's, it's clearly not a, a big issue, then it's just sometimes you can just point out that you've made a calculation error. And sometimes it might be something a bit more deep rooted. And uh, you, you have to pose a question or some sort of some sort like, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, put me on the spot here, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, how could you check this is right, for example? That's, that's a terrible yes. example. I'm sorry. I, I can show up and think of something better. Uh, <laughs> but no matter how, what, what structure or strategies or methods or, or whatever mechanics are used to mark I just the most important thing is is what what we're doing is what I'm doing is what I'm writing is what the students going to do when they read it is it actually going to improve them and if the answer to that is no I need to rethink the strategy more, more than anything else and the most gut-wrenching thing is when they uh when, when you spend time marking and uh, they they don't they don't spend as much time reading it and using it and doing something with it so the probably more important than marking is ensuring that students have time and lesson to actually do something with what you've written yeah that's very sound advice and, and can i ask do you have that do you kind of have dedicated whether it be once every two weeks or whatever time in lessons where kids respond to marking and respond to feedback and so on yeah absolutely yeah uh if, it, if i've Managed to collect in the whole class's work and mark the whole class in one go. Then we will spend a, a big chunk of of the lesson uh, doing that. Sometimes, especially when you've got big classes, it's not always manageable to do it in one go. So um, I might go for a structure where I say I'm going to take this row today and I'll take this row tomorrow and this row. So I'm only doing yes. eight a, eight a day rather than or, or six a day rather than loads of them. And that will be the starter, I suppose, uh, for the next few lessons. Um, so if the book's been marked, rather than doing the starter, they they work through the EBIs and uh, and they work through the corrections. Uh, knowing that the next lesson it will be the row next to them. Uh, sometimes it's I don't know it's it's but it's I take the boys one day and the girls another day or whatever. Yes. So whoever can help me figure out which ones I've marked, which ones I haven't, in that sense. 
Got it. And last question about Martin, I promise, is um, what happens to the work that the kids do in that kind of follow-up lesson? Do you, do you remark that or is that just kind of a quick glance at it? What happens to that work? Paul? I tend to try and look at as much as I can during a lesson while they're marking it, ah, uh, right. especially if it's something that they might get stuck on of some kind. Uh, it's, there's no point giving the book back and saying, do you know, do something with this and they still don't and they have no idea what to do with it. So um, I, I try as much as possible during a lesson to uh, and if I got a, if I got a TA or something like that uh, or, or a learner mentor, then we work together to try and get around students as much as possible. Got it. Fantastic. Right. Well, let, let's move from that excellently planned lesson, which, which sounds absolutely superb, to, to a bit of a disastrous lesson, <laughs> if that's all right, Paul. So I wonder if you can think, and it can be in your recent memory or, or from way back when, when you started your career, can you just talk us through a lesson that you taught that didn't go as you hoped it would do it? And crucially, what, what did you learn from it? Uh, I, I, I never shared this with anyone before, Craig, if I'm honest with you. I don't think I should Oh, world exclusive. <laughs> um, I'm going to hop right back to my, my probably my worst lesson, actually. And uh, I, I just, a moment of shame, I suppose, was um, during my, my PGC in my second placement, I was I had a, a very tough first placement. I, I seemed to go over it quite well in my second placement. And uh, I was doing a lesson with year nines on um, data. I might get sacked when I tell you this, or it might. Or everyone who listens might turn off the podcast to think this guy's an idiot. Doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, but I, I, I didn't really uh, uh, like statistics very much, I suppose, when I was a student. And when I was doing A levels, I, the only module that I, I I didn't do very well with was was the statistics module. I resat it. I got one. I got one mark more. I did the first time. It was the, the wasted twenty pound for for a reset. And so at university, I didn't do any. Either I dropped all statistic modules. I hadn't done any kind of statistics for a long time, but here I was doing year nine, uh, finding the median from a from a <laughs> from a group three right. I should be able to hack that really, but so I'll, I had looked, you know, I had re- remind advised it and reminded myself what I'd done uh, five years earlier when I was at high school on it, uh, but probably not to the depth that I should have done really to make myself equipped with a good explanation and to be equipped to answer questions in the lesson. So that was a lesson where I either got modelled up in the explanations or when students started asking questions, I didn't really have the, it got quite flustered, I suppose, in many ways. I also hadn't quite properly looked at exactly what they needed to know at year nine, really. I think I went a bit too far with trying to get them wants to figure out what group it was to try and get them to uh, interpolate it etc yes um i the it was the one lesson that that entire year where the host teacher said paul i'm going to have to re-explain this to the class <laughs> oh no and my heart sank i sat in the back of the classroom and just uh, had a word of myself really uh i guess what I, I learned from that was the importance of your subject knowledge more than anything else it doesn't matter if you've got a degree in mathematics it doesn't matter if you if you're a doctor in it, you, you need to you need to know the topic that you're going to teach inside out. You need to know how to explain it. You need to know what are the likely questions that students are asked. And if your explanation doesn't go right, you need to know what other explanations can you give, what alternatives can you give. You need to know the whys as well as the as as the the, the hows, I suppose. Because if you, I, I mostly just was talking about the process, and I think it was when a student said, "Why do you do that?" Um, that's what threw me more than anything else, because students will inevitably ask why. Yes. Uh, it really I'm, I've never made that mistake again um, even when I was I, I got cured by the way because I got when I got my first job the head of math said so Paul we, we, everyone teaches A-level here because it's, we have so much A-level what's your preferences module wise so I said you know pure at top mechanics at top <laughs> then discrete and not stats 
And in my, my first year, I taught the stats module, and then <laughs> I even taught a whole A level in statistics and GCSE statistics, year thirteen statistics. Yeah, uh, so that that fully cured my stats phobia, really. Um, but even when I was doing year thirteen statistics, um, and that was about four, five years ago, I absolutely made sure that I, I I knew it more more than I would ever need to know it to teach because that's. Uh, there's a Chinese proverb but to fill up a cup of water you need a bucket of water you know you have to have, you have to be have a full bucket of water of knowledge to to get that and I, I don't think I'll, I'll ever make that mistake again <laughs> that's fantastic that's fantastic well hopefully you've still got your job after this <laughs> I think you'll be fine what uh, are you a stats fan these days then have you have you seen the lights you know, from I, that one I, I actually I do quite like it if I'm honest with you um I I think when it when did the A level in statistics um I, I started to see a bit more of the because I spent so much time in the university doing the pure maths. I love the, yes. the algebra side of things, but I could start to see a bit more about the, the applications of statistics and actually how it is very pure in many ways as well. And um, yeah, I, I, I was also, they had quite fun uh, and topics to teach as well at lower school. So yeah, uh, I'm a statistics fan now. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> Okay, Paul. Now, this next bit, I'm, I'm going to make an apology straight out. I'm going to grill you a lot on this because this is <laughs> something I've been wanting to talk to someone on the podcast about for, for ages. And that's bar modeling. And just to give a bit of context, I reckon at least 50% of the people listening to this will have been on some kind of bar modeling course or a bar modeling workshop or something like that. And most people will be certainly aware of the, the kind of basic concepts. But, but I would hazard a guess that it, it a bit like mastery it's one of those kind of buzzwords that gets flung around and not fully understood so i really want to kind of dive into in, into bar modeling why you're a fan of it what kind of questions it lends itself well to and then we're even going to go for a world premiere on the podcast we're going to get a bit inter interactive and we're going to actually go through a couple of situations and that bar modeling lends itself to so to, to kick to kick things off or well, no pressure here but um what does bar modeling mean to you and, and kind of how did you come across the, the concept of it? OK, uh, so bar modeling is a way to represent calculations or mathematical concepts using fairly a fairly simple diagram so that when students perform calculations, they, they can see what they're doing with the numbers and what the calculations are doing to the numbers. So, for example, when students do 20 divided by four and the thinking of division is sharing, they can see what their four does to the 20 in, in, a, in a visual sort of way. And it can also be a problem solving tool to help students plan out what calculations they need to do at different points. The um, I think the, uh, the the key the idea about bar modeling is is that it's that other diagrams are, are available. And, and, and do the same thing, you know, whether it's you know drawing scales for equations or pizzas for fractions. The important thing is that or the, the important thing about using any kind of pictorial representation or concrete manipulative is that it provides students with something tangible that they can manipulate. And, and so that way they can they can think about it. They can think about it as they're manipulating things and, and try and make meaning out of what they're doing, really. I often sort of think about when when children first learn to read. There's usually pictures on the page to help students visualize the story and make sense of the words and diagrams and mathematics, wherever they are, can you know, do a very similar sort of thing for students with mathematics. I, think, we were, I know we will talk about Japan later, but the, um, what, in, in Japan, most lessons that we went to, the teacher asked the students when they were coming up with methods to use a, to describe the method using a combination of pictures, words and symbols. So the three always went together in that, in that sort of way. I guess the, the powerful thing about bar modeling is that it, it provides students with a, 
of a consistent picture between each topic. You know, if if you're always drawing pizzas for your fractions and you're always using bags to describe ratios, then it's hard to see how those two topics are connected. But with, with if they using a bar model for fractions, a bar model for ratio, the, 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 actually the diagrams look very very similar. They look nearly identical apart from one or two slight sort of things. So you can see the the links between them. I think it's important that that student, if, if students still see other diagrams because that gives them that more variety in terms of ways that concepts can be um, presented, but or, or ways you can think of concepts. But have that having that some sort some sort of consistent core that runs through your curriculum. It's a useful thing for students to see how all these different aspects of mathematics are linked together so that your your model for multiplication will look pretty much exactly the same as your model for addition. To em and you can make it do that to emphasize that you can think of multiplication as repeated addition. That's one way you can think of it. And then your model for four times five looks pretty much identical to your model for 20 divided by four in that sense. You can see how those things are linked in that sort of way. So God, that, yeah. oh, sorry, Paul. No, no, no go, go after you. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, God, just so many questions here. That I guess the first is in in your in your kind of day to day teaching. How is it possible to give a kind of rough percentage of your lessons that would involve a, a bar model approach? And does it does it differ depending on the age and kind of ability or set of, of the students that you're teaching? Uh, it's a good question. I think uh, I think it, it doesn't rather than different depending on age. I think it differs and depends on on, on the curriculum, I suppose. So. Um, Let's say uh, year seven. Um, if I'm doing if I'm, the biggest misconception, people get quite excited about bar modeling. When I first shared it with my colleagues, I must have got about 50 emails that week saying, "Paul, how do I bar model this? How do I bar model that? <laughs> how do I do circle theorems of bar models? <laughs> uh, you can't bar model everything." And uh, so, it depends what topic. If I'm with year seven, if I'm working on the number stuff, then yeah, there'll be quite a bit of bar modeling going on. Uh, same with the algebra stuff as well. Um, if it's other things like, like geometry and statistics, probably like not not really. Uh, if, if I'm honest with you, as I go further up the school, because um, the the intention is not for students to bar model forever. It's it's to get students to see what's going on at crucial moments of development with a concept. Uh, so uh, once they've got the, they've got that understanding, I don't necessarily want them to solve every question with a bar model. I want them to use the bar model to work on the meaning of the topic and or the concepts. So a bit late, later on, they've, they've built up lots of those foundations on, on the topics and probably where bar modeling comes in a bit more useful with, I've only got a year 11 this year, uh, um, is, is with them is uh, with, with problem solving in particular to help them plan out what they can do uh, in situations when they don't know what to do really. Got it. And are the, you, you mentioned that unfortunately it doesn't lend itself to, to every single topic. Um, are there any topics that, you tend to find that teachers are surprised that the bar modeling approach does lend itself well to, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest surprise tends to be, um, uh, there's ones which it, it fits really nicely to like ratios and fractions, uh, and, and things like that. It lends itself quite nicely to equations at the very basic starting level, you know, like two X plus seven equals, 15 for example uh, but it, it can then become a bit more problematic when you start having 2x minus 7 equals 15 I, i've seen on the internet people bar model that uh, in some kind of way but it, it sort of loses its simplicity in many ways really um and then when you got equations with x on both sides it it, it, it shows quite nicely the, the the 
how one thing is equal to the other thing really and if you if you do if you subtract the five then your bars will be shorter for one for the than the other so uh it works quite nicely for, for for topics like that got it and can i just ask on that and this is maybe me playing devil's advocate a little bit but if if it's the case that it lends itself well to certain solving equations and, and can pr- provide like a really solid foundation for students, whether it's 2x plus 5 equals 10 or whatever. But then as soon as a little twist comes on that, whether a, a negative's involved or something like that, uh, and you have to switch to a different approach, is do, does that kind of... The argument I often hear is, well, what's the point starting with the bar modeling thing in the first place if it can't take the students all the way through? What what, what do you say to that? Yeah, uh, I think the, it's it's down to what you want to use the bar model for. And the the most, I think the, the, key, the, the key thing is that it's not a very efficient way of doing calculations. And if you, if you want to use the bar model to do calculations, you, you, you're going to tie yourself a knot, really, and... Um, and probably not see the point in many many ways. It's it's usually the point of, of what I see for bar modeling is to illustrate a point. And let's take that example of, of solving equations, uh, 2x plus 5, I can't remember it was, 2x plus 7 equals 15. <laughs> um, I'd use the bar model at the very starting point to get students to see what's going on in that situation and get across the point that whatever, you know, whatever, if you subtract f- uh, 7 off this bar you have to subtract seven off the other bar and then you have to divide this bar by two by, by, by two i'd use the bar to get across the point that whatever you do to one side of the equation do to the other and get students to a point where they can actually they've practiced it but they've got to the point where they can do deal with that abstractly and they don't need the bar anymore and I, and only then would you then start to look at things that you that would bar would be troublesome for so once the usual advice for that is once students get to a point where they can solve 2x whatever it is abstractly then and they've got the idea that what you do to one side of the equation do to the other then start saying well actually tell you what what happens if it was minus seven instead what do you need to do to this side of the equation to to make to get rid of that you know uh, you'd add seven this time but you don't necessarily have to go back to the bar for that because you've your students have built up some sort of foundation that you can build on that if I wanted to uh, put an extension on, uh, by the way, I'm not a builder, so I don't know if this is true. But if I want to put an extension <laughs> on on my on my roof. I don't necessarily, I don't really want to start digging around in my foundations again to my house. I, I, I'm gonna, if the foundations are strong enough, I can I can build upon my roof. If the foundations aren't strong enough, then then I can't really. So uh, you don't always have to go back to square one and um and go back to the bar every single time. Do Do you often again just just to push it a little bit further? Um, do you do you ever get kids who for example, they've been completely comfortable with the bar modeling, with, with the basics of equations, and then you introduce them to an equation that the bar model doesn't lend itself particularly well to. And they say either, sir, I don't get it. Can you show me this in a bar model? Uh, or they just, yeah, the, 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 their understanding just isn't there. And what, what happens What happens in that case when you've essentially the bar model lets you down because it, it can't illustrate a certain concept do, do you then teach the kids from square one in a different way whether it be kind of balancing equations or whatever or yeah what happens in that scenario paul uh, i think uh, as teachers always uh, when when students don't see things one way we'll we'll think of other ways but without compromising the method or the concept you're trying to get across really so you, you can use uh, cups and counters, I said, uh, you know, rather than bars, and it'll get across this, the same point. Usually, what I'm, what I think, if students haven't got something, it's not necessarily the diagram or the the materials that I'm using that's let them down. It's it's the discussion around it, really. The the the, 
the key thing about the the di- having some sort of diagram on the board of some kind or the bar model on the board is it provides you something to talk about. Yes. And if if students have a misunderstanding, it's, it's probably rooted. If, if a diagram's wrong, if a diagram's wrong, but it's probably rooted in what we said and and talked about with the diagram. How did I question the students? Did I ask them? each little part did i ask them the key things actually what relate the diagram to the abstract when we were doing the, the diagram is was i making sure that the calculations were being put on the board at the same time and asking the students how does this calculation relate to the diagram can you see where this multiplication is in my diagram what part of uh, my, my diagram lends itself to, to this those questions are really important to build up the concept more important than the, than the diagram itself in many ways because that's where you are you are you're quizzing the students and, and and get them to think very analytically about the mathematics the diagram gives you something to talk about got it fantastic and just before we we look at one of these one or two of these uh, situations live on the podcast my, my final question on this is um, and a, a little bit like Again, I've, I've been reading Mark McCourt's blogs at the time of recording about Mastery House saying it's not one of those things you can dip into. You know, it's a fully kind of committed way of teaching. Is that the same when it comes to bar modeling? And the reason I ask that is you, you've highlighted one of the strengths of the approach is, is the consistency relating multiplication to division, ratio to fractions and so on. So can you can you dip into bar modeling and say, right, I'm going to use it because my students are struggling on ratio, but I'm not going to use it for percentages. I'm not going to use it for fractions. Or is it one of those things that it's kind of all or nothing? You can do. Yeah, absolutely. You can dip into it. Um, you might, you lose, you lose the strength about the interconnectivity between topics. If that's what, if that's the case, but if students are struggle with ratio or as a teacher, you struggle to explain ratio uh, or, or whatever, then you can use a bar model to teach ratio. Absolutely. And, and that might be all you use bar modeling for. It won't necessarily, and that'll help students figure out things about ratio, but it won't necessarily help students uh, see, see the connection between ratio and fractions or, or, or whatever. So the, um, I guess the answer would, would, would be yes, but, uh, but the more things that we can, that you can link up in mathematics, like, like the, the whole similar shapes and fractions, equivalent fractions thing we talked about earlier, the, I was, there was, there was a, a phrase I heard once about sort of what I what I like is being able to uh, turn this big old world, make it make it feel like a small village. I think maths can be like that. There's just so many so many things to learn, little things to learn in mathematics. If if students can boil them down to some key concepts and and, and see how all these little things are linked and actually actually the same ideas up in different ways, it can it can it can help them out in many ways. Fantastic. Perfect. Well, I see kind of just jumping ahead that you, you're going to actually recommend a, a, a book that, or so much uh, teachers can go if they want to know a little bit more about bar modeling. So with that in mind, I wonder if you could just pick either one or two scenarios. And if listeners want to get pens and pens, pens and paper at the ready and just kind of talk us through a couple of questions that bar modeling lends itself particularly well to, if that's all right. Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've got I've got two questions. Um, and I think these are, are good examples about the problem solving side of things, um, because where, where I think bound modeling is, is particularly helpful particularly problem solving is when the, the words of the question or the numbers used in the question can mislead you. 
So uh, here's, here's a fairly straightforward example, and I've got another one after that. Um, so now, now, don't make this too awful. I'm playing along, <laughs> playing along myself. I don't want to be embarrassed on my own podcast. Like, so. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pub quiz. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, let's say Peter and Jane share £24 between them. Peter gets three times as much as Jane. How much does Jane get? Got it. So what's the likely mistake that students would make with a question like this? You hear the words share, so you think in division. Yes. You hear three times, so your gut instinct is likely to be to divide by three. And yes. 24 divides by three, so that fits really nicely. And if you did that, then Jane would get eight pounds, 24 divided by three. But if you then worked out how much Peter got, well, Peter got three times more than uh, three times as much as Jane, which means he got eight times three. He got, he, Peter got twenty-four pound. Now, between them, they have more money than what they started with because Jane's got eight and Peter's got twenty-four, but he only started with twenty-four pound in total between them. So um, that's that's the that's a mistake that a lot of people make with a question like that. If you were to try and draw this out, it would, the bar model will look a bit like this. So, if you were if you draw a rectangle um, for and, and label it Jane. And then yep. above, above that or below it, you draw another uh, bar for Peter that is made out of three of the, these rectangles, all side by side. And then at the side, you'd label that both Peter and Jane's bars add up to 24 pounds. So you've got a, a bar for Peter, which made out three rectangles, a bar for Jane, one rectangle. On the side, it says, like you've got like a bracket or something saying the, all these things add up to 24 pounds. Got it. And am I right in saying that kind of Jane's bar is straight on top of the first of Peter's bars, if that makes sense? Uh, it can be, or you can have a gap between it. I, I, I think the little little things like that don't I, I don't don't necessarily matter too much. Sometimes you Got like it. to connect them. Sometimes like to leave a gap. Um, Got it. So long as you can see clearly what's what's happening. Once you've drawn that, you can actually see that there's in fact four equal sized rectangles that make up the twenty four. Yes. So that those four rectangles are the twenty four, which means the calculation isn't uh, 24 divided by 3. It, you, the calculation would be useful to figure out what's in each of the rectangles would be 24 divided by 4, which means each rectangle would have 6 in it. Uh, yep. I mean, Jane would get £6. If you wanted to work out Peter, he get you would get three of those rectangles, you get three sixes, which is £18, and you can check by thinking, well, 6 for Jane and 18 for Peter, and they're up to 24. And the number, God. the number 24 was chosen deliberately there because it divides by both three and four. So it allows the students to make that mistake. Got it. Yep, I like that. No, I'm on board so far with this. Okay, so the second example is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a true story about how I came across this example, actually. Um, I, I've got a mate who uh, my wife and I meet with regularly for drinks. Or we used to meet with regularly for drinks. And uh, he's an electrical engineer. And his office gets a magazine uh, called something like Electrical Engineering Monthly. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Sounds a classic. Exists, yeah. And every month there's a mass question in there, and every uh, and and everyone in his office apparently has a go at the mass question, and uh, and every every month he usually asks me uh, the, right. the question. And there's one month when um, the uh, there's a problem when no one in the office got it right, and they all they all saw the answer in the magazine, and they couldn't understand why the magazine said it was that answer and why it's a different okay. answer. Uh, so he asked me this question in the pub, and with uh, about three seconds, I gave him the right answer. 
And I, <laughs> yeah, I, I should have seen his reaction. Like I've never seen anyone go from like this smug look, thinking oh, I'll get you, <laughs> to this smouldering uh, so quickly. <laughs> so, so, first, how do you get the answer? So how do you get the answer? Because we couldn't. And then how do you get it so quickly? And I told them that that yes. week I've been delivering bar model training, and one of the questions was very similar to this one here. So here's a question that uh, got tripped everyone up. So you got a house and a garden together are worth two hundred thousand pounds. Yep. The house is worth a hundred and fifty thousand pounds more than the garden. Okay. How much is the garden worth? Ooh, nice. Now, what everyone in the office had done was to subtract a hundred and fifty thousand from the two hundred thousand. Yes. To get fifty thousand for the garden. But similar to the last one, if you then use that to work out the value of the house, you get two hundred thousand for the house. You put them together, you get more money than what you started with. Yes. So if you try and draw this one, well, we'll draw a bar for the house and a bar for the garden. But the bar for the house would have to be longer than the one for the garden because it's worth more money. Okay. Now that the house is worth uh, an extra £150,000 more than the garden. So that, that gap between where the garden bar ends and the house bar ends, the extra sticky out bit, we can label that with £150,000. That's the bit that's more than the garden. Yes. And those two bars, they add up to £200,000. So you can put a, a bracket or some, some next to those two bars and to label it, say that these two bars add up to £200,000. Got it. So again, just to check, I've got this right. So these, um, the house bar and the garden bar are kind of, again, just sat on top of each other. They're not on the same horizontal level, if that makes no. sense. Got it. Got it. And the sticky out bit, we can label as 150. Yeah. 150,000. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> I'm still with you. <laughs> so that, that, that bar for the house, the long one, we can talk now as a student about how that is actually made out of two things. You've got the sticky out bit, which is worth 150,000 pound. You've got yes. the bit before it, which we don't know how much that's worth, but it's, we know it's the same as the garden. It's the same yes. size as the garden. So let's split that bit up into uh, that bar up into those two parts. Okay, yeah. So we look at the diagram now, you can see you've got uh, you've got the two hundred thousand pounds, that's made out of the hundred and fifty thousand pounds to stick it out a bit, and you've got yes. two identical rectangles. Yes. One attached to the hundred and fifty thousand pounds for the house, and the one for the garden. So rather than subtracting a hundred and fifty thousand pounds sorry, rather than uh, to, to get the garden, what we can see now is you've got two unknowns plus 150,000 pounds gives you 200,000 pounds. So let's get rid of that 150,000 pounds. Let's remove that from it. We could subtract that as well from, from the total value. So you end up then with two squares, two rectangles, sorry, adds up to the remaining 50,000 pounds. Yes. So what can we do now? We can divide that by two to get 25,000 pounds for a garden. And then you can work that out to get 175,000 pounds for the house. Nice. Now that's lovely, that. Super. Very good. Yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm very, very I've never had to do that audio lead before. That was, <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do to talk about pictures. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely superb, that, Paul. So I wonder when you kind of, because am I right in saying that you, you kind of deliver bar modeling training kind of up and down the country at various events and so on? And um, do you come across any common objections to, to bar modeling that we, that we haven't covered already? Because as I said, this is, it looks simple. It's logical. It gives that kind of pictorial representation for the kids. Where does this, what, what the teachers tell you about either what they don't like about it or where in your experience does this approach go wrong? Well, there's, um, I think one thing is when teachers 
I included myself when I first saw this, actually, uh, saw it as a new way to perform calculations. Um, I remember the first time I delivered this to some teachers and, and and one thought it was a bit like the when the grid method was introduced rather than the long multiplication. I just, just saw it as a, as, a, as a way to get answers more than anything else. But that's that's not necessarily what it's what it's what it's necessarily for. You can you can do that in some cases. But the, the, the key thing really is that it should the diagram should not be a replacement for students writing down their calculations. It shouldn't be a replacement for ways to do it. It should be something that accompanies the calculations so that students can see what the calculations do and what they're doing with the calculations. So uh, the, I guess the key, the key thing I would recommend for that is, yeah, don't, don't think of it as a, as a new way to, to get answers. Think of it as a way to explain how we're getting the answers more than anything else and ensure that as students are doing the diagrams they are also writing the calculations down as well so this they're seeing those things together uh, even if they think they can just get the answer of the diagram they from to, to to understand what calculations are doing encourage them to to still write down division and multiplication and what calculations are going on in that sort of sense really so that's that's one um a problem that sometimes comes up I guess the other is when it looks like it's things that the people already do. And I had the same skepticism when I first uh, I played a lot of diagrams to help students with the maths quite a lot. And every, the first time I read a book about uh, bar model, I thought, well, I, I do that already. But I, I, I draw bags rather than rather than um, boxes and stuff like that. Yes. It was only when I sat down one day with a piece of paper and drew out all the little representations that I did. I realized I had a page were had loads of diagrams, but they all looked completely different. So, yes. Uh, the, the advice I give to that is, yes, it might do the same thing of one of your diagrams. It should do. It's the same concept. It's the same idea. Um, but and don't don't replace the other things you do. But have have some sort have this to go alongside, or 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 so, so to provide that um, consistency between topics. I guess the uh, the other problem can come up is when it's introduced to students for the first time. Um, uh, if it's something that if it's a topic where students already know how to get an answer, they can be a bit resistant towards it. Yes. Because yes. they see maths sometimes as just about getting answers. Um, and that, that when that's when that's the case, they don't see the point of the bar quite rightly and they don't appreciate it in that sort of sense uh, because they already know an algorithm that gets them the answer. So why, why bother doing the extra work of drawing a bar? And I, I, yeah, if I was being taught by modern, I think the same thing. <laughs> so uh, in that situation i'd advise that when it's introduced to the students for the first time uh, introduce it with either a topic they haven't seen before uh, so that they can uh, learn it through the bar and get an appreciation for it um and then and then you can look back and say well how does this idea apply to some of the things we've learned before uh, yes. if they're happy with that or introduce it for the first time students as a problem solving tool and it doesn't matter what year group they're in like there's some of those examples you give it you can you can have numbers like uh, Peter and Jane share some sweets. John has five sweets more than Peter, etc. They can be used for those sorts of situations and introduce it as a problem-solving tool. And then until they get familiar with it, then you can think, well, you know, can we use this tool that we've we've, we've solved these problems with to help us get ahead around ratio or, or fractions or whatever, really? Got it. No, that that's great advice. And I wonder this this is probably me just being ridiculously stereotypical here, but. I want, in my limited experience with it, it's, it's tended to be the kind of neat girls who like setting <laughs> things out, who, who love it, and the lads who just want to bang the answer down, who are like, I'm not drawing that stupid bar. Um, is, do, do you have any kind of experience of, of which type of students this, this kind of 
who, who buy into it quicker than others? And I guess more importantly, how do you get those other students on board? I mean, you, you've mentioned a couple of things there in terms of um, introducing a topic that they're least familiar with. Um, I wonder if there's any other kind of tips to, to bring the reluctant students on board to, to bar modeling. I guess not to be not to be too prescriptive or restrictive with it. Really, it's 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 a tool for for exploration. It's a, it's a tool for discussion, and the more um, we restrict students, the or the more we put um, guidelines on it, I suppose, the, the the more reluctant they could be. Um, quite often, uh, a lot of a lot of bar modeling happens in, in in lessons tends to be uh, on mini whiteboards because. We use the we use the bar modeling for making meaning of mathematics at the moment when they're trying to make sense of things, not necessarily when they're doing twenty questions or, or whatever. Yes. I think if, if I was to do bar modeling for t- for twenty questions, <laughs> I'd probably uh, get sick of it as well. Um, it's it, we so because they just use it at the moment where they're trying to make sense of things. Yeah, do it on mini whiteboards. Don't necessarily get them to use a ruler on a mini whiteboard or anything like that. They they can they can be quite free with it, I suppose, in that situation and chop things up. If they if they do things in the books, then yeah, I'm not going to ask them to, to bar model every single question. I'm asking them to bar model until they they've got their head around what they what they're doing. And then once they're once happy with that, they've got their head around what they're doing, then they can then they can uh, then they can move away from it. Really, you know, it's got abstractly. Got it. Fantastic. And I, th- I think the the last thing I, I'd certainly say on this, and I, again, I don't know if you agree with this, Paul, but like any any method, if the students basic arithmetic skills are not in place then it can derail the method and what, what i mean by that is so say say some of these examples that, that you've given me here if when i got down to knowing that um two lots of gardens equals the the fifty thousand pounds but i couldn't then take it to the next step and say well one garden's twenty five thousand pounds it goes back to the point i was making before in the student's head Bar modeling's rubbish. They can't do ratio. Blah 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 blah. Whereas you know, it's actually their their arithmetic skills that are letting them down. So to use any method, and this isn't just bar modeling, would you agree with me, Paul, that it, kids' confidence and competence with numbers just has to be so solid before you even go there with an approach like this? Because again, the, the success of this approach, one one level is is getting the kids to set it out properly, but then to actually do the computations, if that's not in place, then it's a waste of time trying it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't help students perform calculations and they so they need the numeracy skills they need to be able to know how to divide and times and the number of times tables and all those sorts of things they they they, the key thing is it just helps them see what's going on when they do those things more than anything else got it that's fantastic can I, Paul. Yeah, I'm can gonna... I do a short plug you can always cut it out if you don't want it no oh, <laughs> plug it honestly honestly plug away go for it oh we got a um, if, if, if people are interested in uh, bar modeling and, and if they if, if they're new to it or they just want to figure out what's about or if they've been doing it and they want to find out a bit more the uh, the book that I recommended um, which is by Char Forston it was probably the, one of the first books I read when I was trying to learn a bit more about it and well, the author is uh, she's presenting at a conference in uh, February the 16th. It's a the conference is being put on by uh, Trinity Teaching School with in joint with the Maths Hub. It's in Salford. Um, it's all day on the 16th. She's doing the keynote and she's doing workshops all day. And there's other people from the Lightrose Maths Hub presenting. And there's someone from another Maths Hub uh, in Yorkshire and uh, uh, other expert practitioners from different parts of the country. The main, main focus for the conference is bar modeling or using diagrams in, in general so if you're interested uh, it's on the website page fantastic and i'll place a link to that in the show notes. thank you 
All right, Paul. So now we've we've covered bar modeling, got got that box stuff. Um, I've been <laughs> working on that box stuff joke for a while. Um, let's move now on to on to questioning because it seems we have a bit of a shared obsession with this. Um, I, I we've we've mentioned misconceptions and and earlier on, but I am absolutely obsessed with questioning. So I guess my first kind of question to you is is what makes a good question in in your opinion? Um, I'd probably say more than anything, purpose really. Um, the a, a question is only as good as the, the reason why it's asked uh, or the purpose for it. Uh, I probably even advocate that there's no such thing as a as a bad question. You, you can only have good or bad questioning, I suppose. And by question, I mean both how the the collection the, the questions form together as a collective, it's sort of blender questions you ask in, in total, and then also the the techniques that a teacher uses to to pose the questions to class verbally in, in, in particular, really. So got it. Oh, sorry, go oh, on. Keep oh, going. Sorry. Go for it, sorry. No, no, no. You please, please expand on that because I'm interested there that it's it's the context and the purpose that that defines whether it's a good question or not. Could you just dig a little bit deeper into that? Maybe by giving us um, examples of kind of good or bad, um, either contexts or, or or ways of asking questions, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I probably should say that. Um, when I, when I said earlier that uh, master's uh, teaching, my dissertation was on questioning, and we uh, filmed quite a lot of lessons to look at the the nature of, of questioning and dialogue in the classrooms. And and the two quite blunt statistics came out of it. Uh, it's going to feed into what I'm going to say next. Really, is that we had 50 minute long minute less, minute sorry we had 50 minute long lessons at the time, and teachers asked on average eight seven questions a lesson. Flipping out. Which works out as a question every 34 seconds. Jeez. And the highest one is 146 questions asked in that lesson, which is a question every 20 seconds. Flipping out. So if the purpose isn't right, then that's that could be a lot of time uh, of just asking questions which don't necessarily do what you want to do, uh, really. So what uh, when when asking so like one reason for asking a question. When I ask, I deliver a lot of training sessions on questioning, and I always ask people, why do we ask questions? If that's how many we ask, why, why do we bother doing it? And one uh, reason that comes up quite a lot is, and it's a very, very important reason, is to check uh, students' prior learning. So that, so that could be uh, what they've learned in the previous lesson, or it could be what they've just learned in that lesson now, but uh, the purpose could be to assess the students in some kind of way, uh, and that's, that's, that's an important thing to do to do regularly. But the the problem is if the only questions that we ask are to assess things that they've already learned, then and we ask 87 questions in a lesson. <laughs> when do they learn anything new in the lesson? Yes. So another another purpose for asking questions uh, could be is to develop students thinking in some kind of way. So to draw students attention to something uh, so that they can think about it and and more important to deduce something new. And that's why I ask the question is to get students to to deduce something new and learn something new by thinking about the answer. I think uh, Trevor Kerry, who's written a book about a uh, question, he, he refers to this as students making an intuitive leap of some kind uh, in, their, in their thinking. And they, these are questions we don't necessarily expect students to know the answer. They're the sort of questions where students uh, can construct meaning out of things and, and develop understanding. But unfortunately, a number of studies, including my own, conclude that teachers rarely go beyond asking for, for recall or description lessons. The vast majority of questions we ask, we expect students to already know the answer. Ah, that's fair. That's very interesting. And again, just to, just to flesh this out a little bit, I wonder if you could draw just uh, practical examples to, to contrast those two. Could you give us some, some recall questions that teachers would ask and then 
give us some examples, possibly for the same topic, of these kind of, I don't know, is it right to call them higher order questions or, or th- these questions that, that cause students to, to leap in their understanding? Yeah, so um, uh, I, I guess re- recall, a lot of recall questions in lessons tend to be the sorts of things we ask to, to just keep students engaged. And that's, that's, that's important as well. To so Quite often we ask questions to make sure students are uh, participating and listening and, and that side of things. So uh, a lot of the questions that were recall ones in the study I did were, were keeping students going with the calculations. So what's three times four when they're in the middle of doing other calculations? So it could be, how do you find the over rectangle, for example? Um, usually the, the, the subtle wording changes a little bit when it's a, a question you're asking students to think about for the first time. So rather than, let's say it's a parallelogram. If I'm asking, how how do I find the over of a parallelogram? It, it, you just hear those words. It implies that you expect students to already know how to find the over parallelogram. How do you yes. find the over parallelogram? Um, so that, that could be thought of as a recall question. If I ask students, how could I find the area of this parallelogram? The word could implies, implies that the, uh, the students don't really know yet. And you ask, the reason why you're asking could is because you ask them to think about it and come up with an idea of some kind, but they might not be right. But what, you know, what could we do in that sense? A lot of, that, that question might have the same, same, very, very similar words, but it's down to the context, really. If I'm asking them about parallel, area of a parallelogram, if they've learned it already, and I'm asking ask them to, to whip up the knowledge, then it's, it's recall. If I'm asking them to speculate about what could we do, even though we haven't learned it yet, that's, that's something that's making them uh, think a bit more about something they don't necessarily know. I guess one, one question, type of question I, 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 really, I really do quite like is uh, when we're asking students to make predictions about things, uh, well, the best so we, we can do with that in mathematics. So, uh, for example, Let's let's can we change the topic to to uh, finding the mean? I suppose if students have found the mean of a list of numbers, your recall question might be how do you find the mean of a li- of this set of numbers? And they might already know how to do that. But the um, you could then talk oh, to talk about what would happen if I what do you think would happen if I rubbed out this ten here? What what do you think would happen to the mean? Or even more open, you could say what what do you think would happen if I rubbed out one of these numbers? What would that do to the mean? And there's, there's there's different possibilities there. Students could talk about how if the, if it's these if it's one of these numbers you're about, it'll make the mean bigger. If it's one of these numbers you're about, it'll make the mean smaller. Uh, you could ask students, well, what number would I need to rub out to make it the same? It's 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 not. If the mean was five, it's if you wrote the five, it won't necessarily uh, it won't necessarily be the same mean afterwards. So those sorts of questions that make students peck, you know, speculate what could happen if you change things subtly, uh, really get get really get them thinking. And I mean, this again, this is this absolutely fascinating and stuff. This, Paul, when you're giving these workshops and, and advising teachers on questioning, what advice do you give teachers to to come up with these questions themselves? Is it the case of starting with a recall question and then looking for ways to tweak it? Is that is that the kind of best practical way to, to start thinking about these these different styles of questions yeah i think sometimes it's just awareness really um a lot of it's it's very easy to come up with recall questions off the top of your head a lot of the questions if you ask eight seven questions unless you haven't planned them all a lot of them are spur of the moment <laughs> sort of things and they, they they tend to be a lot of time that the the recall ones uh, and, and recall i've got to say it sounds like i'm being it, recalling is is a good and important thing to do in lessons the the thing that i like, like to raise awareness of is is it, they shouldn't be the only questions, really. Uh, and uh, when sh- when teachers hear those statistics, uh, they they then start to think about how they can get a better blend of of questions and lessons. Usual advice is to think about what it is you're trying to achieve at different points of lesson. So if you are trying to to get students to recall, 
recall and remember things like at your starter or whatever or whatever then yeah ask those sorts of questions when are the moments in a lesson where students are going to develop when are the moments in a lesson when their ideas were developed or when are you going to push them beyond what they already know and that's where you need to think about your uh, higher order questions or whatever you want to call them your questions that will make them think and develop uh, in, in that sort of sense and they sometimes they're not they're not easy to come up with on the spot so if if you what you wanted to be more conscious about that sort of thing i probably encourage teachers to plan those questions in advance really you don't have to plan them all but maybe what are the two three four or whatever verbal questions that are be really important to make students think and push them beyond from what they know to what they need to know that's no that that's fascinating that and again um this is it's not really a plug it's it's completely free but i did a bit of work on this over the summer myself because we um we have the problem we, we spoke briefly about marking before but we have a thing in our school in, in our department where once kids have finished the homework and stuff um if they've got it all right you've got to give them like a, a more thinking more more deeper question for them for them to ponder and it was becoming increasingly difficult for teachers in the department to keep coming up with all these different questions because as you say it's, it's flipping hard to come up with good questions a lot of the time so we started pooling a bank of these together and just called them kind of convince me that and it's a similar it's a similar thing because if if you take i don't I don't know um you know you mentioned area of a parallelogram before i mean if you if you say what is the how do you work out the area of a parallelogram there's only really one answer to, to that that you're kind of expecting but if you say something like convince me that the area of a parallelogram is base times vertical height then or perpendicular height then you're inviting students to just think that little bit deeper about it and similar to kind of when you're adding two fractions convince me that you don't just add the tops and the bottoms together just just things like that where it just goes a little bit beyond asking kids to recall standard knowledge if that makes sense so we we, we pulled all those together and they're all available on my website and I'll, I'll put a link to those but is that the kind of thing that, that you would advocate that that style of questioning just just for a bit of variety just to get the kids thinking a little bit deeper yeah definitely definitely and and those you know why why do you do that what, what okay that's 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 what was it when there was one there was i had a class uh years ago um we're doing indices and i said right you've got this division of indices so you so, so the powers why do you do that because mr smith told us last year <laughs> oh, that's the, you know. so that, yeah relentlessly asking why what what makes you you know what what makes you think that and uh, and then that, so I guess that leads to your question technique in many ways and, and how you question the class and, and make students think and get students to think about each other's ideas as well and, and, and bounce things around in that sense, really. It's uh, that is probably just as important uh, or as as the questions you ask, because there's no point asking really, really good questions if our question technique doesn't engage the students and make them think about what you're asking. Yes, no, perfect. And I guess uh, to, to play devil's advocate a little bit, but this is this is something that annoys me a little bit in teaching. I remember when I was doing my training and, and in my early years, anytime I go to anything on questioning, the message would always be open questions are good questions, closed questions are bad questions, don't ask closed questions. And my kind of arguments against that is that open questions and higher order questions are, are fantastic and i think i prefer the term probing questions i'm a, I'm a bigger fan of that but where closed questions really ha come into play is if you want a 
quick picture of your class's understanding. If you want to know whether kids can add two fractions together or can work out the error parallelogram, you want to ask a quick fire closed question. You want them to either write it on mini whiteboards or if it's a diagnostic question, a multiple choice question, vote with fingers or so on. You can't get that class picture as quickly or accurately, I would argue, with an open ending, open ended kind of higher order probing or whatever you want to call it question. So it just I don't know. I think sometimes you, you don't want to go too far the other way, as you've made the point yourself and say, right, you can't ask recall or close questions because they do have a key role in the lesson. And, and for me, that role would be understanding and quickly assessing what a large group of, of students know or don't know. Again, does that make sense? Absolutely. It, it's it's got to match what it is you're trying to get out of the lesson, what it is, you, what, or what it is trying to get out of that particular moment in the lesson, really. The uh, uh, your questions have got to match your purpose and if recall questions match your purpose which they will do a lot of the time they're absolutely yeah absolutely ask ask them and if if your purpose if you have a higher order or a probing question or a whatever sort of question matches your purpose yeah that's that that's important as well you can get um because we, we're in the in the in the study I did, it was looking at higher order questions and lower order questions, or um, uh, epistemic questions versus uh, probe questions, or follow up questions, or echo it questions, or whatever. The key the key thing is not necessarily what you call them; it's it's what the question will do. And the uh, I guess what what you're planning when you're asking the question is what is it you want your students to think about at that moment. You're trying to get them to think about something that they know so they can use it, or you're trying to get them to think about something that they that's just a little bit beyond the reach. Those probing questions that you you, you call there, Craig. I think it's a bit like dangling cheese in front of your mouse, just far enough away so that they can they can't reach and you have to sort of go forward to try and get it in that sense, really. When those questions are pitched, just if they've pitched too far away from the the, the, the current knowledge that they have, the it's go it's gonna be they're not really do much with it really. If it's if they're pitched just beyond the the limits of, of what they know. But they can reach it if they just if they just push themselves a little bit. Then that's what can move students forwards in, in that kind of way. That can, that's what can progress them in that kind of way. There was um, I was really lucky to have on the on the, on the MA the, the uh, this gentleman, uh, Professor Phil Scott, led the, led the the module on on uh, dialogue, and he's written some great things about the nature of dialogue and what types of dialogues happen at different types of le- times of lesson. And the, he talks about. Um, uh, well, dialogic moments in a lesson and authoritative moments in a lesson and these dialogic bits are the ones where you bounce ideas around between each other and you're and that's the bit where you're making meaning out of things and you're trying to digest things and analyze things and get you get and learn something new i suppose he, he did it in the context of science but then he talked about how those moments because they're quite messy the the it helps to have some moment afterwards that is more authoritative, where things close down a lot more and the questions might be more closed or it might be the teacher reiterating the key points. But something that makes a bit of clarity in that sense so that, yes, students have explored with open questions and high order questions and really had to think very, very hard. But though that moment of clarity afterwards, that's what a closed question or, a, or an explanation or whatever can can provide in that sense. And that really that, that, that does go. That is that's part of the teacher's techniques for how they engage the students with the questions and how they sequence the questions and how they really make students think the most important thing is is what you want your students to think about at each moment that's good that's great and i wonder just just going back to that statistic you said i think it was 87 questions um on average in, in an hour lesson is is the message from this 87 is too much or is 87 an okay number if you have this variety of different types of questioning in there 
Uh, I don't really know what a number would be uh, if I was to recommend a number. For, I've got to be honest. It's a bit misleading because some of those questions were, can you tuck your shirt in? And I had to. Ah, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to, uh, to, to questions. But uh, I get, I, it's, it's more, it's more when you see the, the, the diagrams, uh, the, the statistics for how many within low order and how many are high order, high order questions. But uh, in, that, in that sense, really, I don't, I'm sorry to have those to hand. Um, but the, the message is however many questions you ask, Think about the blend and think about what you want to do and plan accordingly and think about how you're going to engage students with those questions as well to make sure that you're not just asking questions and they're just watching, they're engaging and they're thinking about what you're saying. No, that's great. And I think just to kind of follow up on a, a few discussions I've had whilst whilst recording this uh, this podcast over the last year or so, whenever I ask teachers to describe their worst lesson they've taught or a bad lesson, often it comes down to, and I think there's a, a touch of this in, in yours, Paul, in not planning the questions out properly. And I, I think it's, it's often a neglected area. Teachers spend hours putting PowerPoints together, finding really nice worksheets, getting nice animations on the PowerPoint, all that kind of stuff. But if you haven't planned your questions, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble here. And I would much rather spend my time planning questions than than doing any other bit of the lesson, because for me, it's the most important thing. So I guess, well, two things from that. One, do you agree that that questioning is the most important part of planning? And two, do you actually, if do you write down these questions um, where, where are they stored so you make sure that you remember to ask them or, or does it just come with experience at this stage of your, your career Paul? I think uh, at the start I wrote them down I'll do a lot I'd, I'd write down what type of dialogue I'd have as, as well at different parts of lessons so when I would have when it would be more dialogic and when it would be more uh, authoritative um, and yeah I couldn't write all the questions down but which are the ones really make students uh, think at a time and yeah, as as you get more experience, those questions get more in your head, I suppose. The more times you reteach a topic, the more you know what to ask and the more you, you, you remember the, the, the key things that got students going last time. But if I was to teach a new topic that I hadn't taught before, like some of the new topics in GCSE or when I was doing a statistics for the first time, I, I, I go back to plan like an NQT in many ways and have to think about uh, from scratch again what what, what the important what are the what are the things I thought about when I was learning this uh, yes guess, and what got got me how to get students to think about those sorts of things as well uh, and what questions can get students to think about those things got it and this is la- last kind of question on questioning I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit Paulie oh, so yeah. don't don't worry if you have, <laughs> don't worry if you haven't got a good answer for this but do you have a favourite question that you've asked or like one that sticks in your mind that you've asked recently that you thought yeah that's a good question that one. Oh my word! Um, a favourite question. I love them all so much. Uh, <laughs> um, I think uh, yeah, actually, well, I quite. It's a question I guess I ask quite a bit. Um, so when I talk about uh, technique uh, earlier, um, one one thing is is that I don't like necessarily evaluating all the students answers so when they say something rather than me saying right it's right or wrong i would ask other people whether they agree or disagree um and that might just be moving to another student saying do you do you agree with what michael just said there um and then maybe ask someone else you know why do you think why do you think michael says that um but other times it might be then uh asking the class you know, hands up if you agree what michael just said hands up if you disagree um and then um, you know you could, you could ask a student so so you agree why you agree or why but my, my from my favorite is when um someone disagrees and i'll ask him so so craig you disagree with michael but can you think why he thinks what he thinks ah nice and it's what's quite nice about that is 
if Michael was right in the first place, well, well Craig's disagreeing. He's, he's probably wrong. But by getting to try and explain why Michael thinks that, it, get, it gets him thinking about the, 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 the correct idea, the, the, the correct concept or idea or explanation where he said, and he, th- he thinks through it. And sometimes he changes his mind in that process. If Michael was wrong in the first time, it unpicks a misconception and gets students to think quite deeply about where the misconception has come from. That's great. No, I'll be using that one myself. I love that. That's absolutely ideal. And that, if anything, kind of segues nicely into into what I want to talk about next, Paul. And that's that's your kind of trips abroad. Um, and I'm not talking 18 to 30 holidays. <laughs> um, um, we've heard and on this podcast and in the in the news loads about Shanghai. And I also know that you, you've been to Japan. So I wonder if and take these in any order you want and, and structure your answer however you want. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about those those two trips and crucially the, the thing i'm interested in is what are the key things you've learned from it what, what have you taken away from that that has changed the way you you teach changed the way you train changed the way you you kind of approach your job so just take it away and again i'll annoyingly interrupt you <laughs> at, at numerous points uh, so we'll start by talking about shanghai um that was the the first trip i went on and that was part of a mass hub uh, national initiative about 70 prime teachers went and then 70 secondary teachers went the, the year after and the shanghai teachers had come to come to britain as well we split up went to different schools went to two different schools uh, each during a trip a primary school and a secondary school and uh, watched various teachers teach mathematics in that time and that i got to say it was it, it really was uh, fascinating uh, it, I, I can't say enough how fascinating it was re- it was really like shanghai itself is, is great being a man who's allergic to fish and peanuts and eggs it's quite a challenge <laughs> uh, uh, in Shanghai. But the um, what, what I learned from the schools was was uh, really made me think quite a lot about about, about teaching. Like there's there's the initial shock and the difference of of, of what the school day looks like in, in terms of mechanics. So things like the students stay in the schools we went to. The students stayed in the classrooms. And the teachers moved between lessons. Uh, went to them instead, and they had 35 minute lessons and then followed by 10 minute break. Those sorts of things. You, sort of you pick up on them first but once you get past that when I start to look a bit more deeper at what was going on it, it really give a lot to think about in terms of the subtleties of teaching the little things that don't necessarily uh can go unnoticed so one one key thing was that they didn't ever seem to leave anything to chance or leave any stone un, unturned really and it, it, that highlighted to me how much we, or at least at least I, uh, gloss over some other tiny things that make up a topic. Uh, and uh, I, I, well, I was going to say it's, it's because I, I assume that students will pick up on them on along the way, but actually, often it's that I don't, you know, you know, it's more like if I don't necessarily think about those as things to think about. Really, I, I guess one example was we saw um, a lesson on in Shanghai on uh, collecting like terms, and. A typical lesson that I'd seen before then in the UK quite a few times and including my own lessons and uh, in, in textbooks as well and resources, the, the vast majority of the lesson would focus on the on the calculation part of, of collecting like terms, of the add-ins terms together or subtracting terms from each other like 3x plus 5x um, or ones we got different letters in. But a lot of the time would would focus on on, on that, on the simplifying part. Whereas in, in the Shanghai lesson, it, it, the teacher invested more time into determining actually what are like terms and what aren't like terms and uh, why are they like terms and why aren't they why they're not so spent the first half lesson looking at pairs of terms and trying to agree whether they're all like or not for example there was a 3ab and minus 2ab are they like or not or minus 4x squared and two-thirds x uh, and then they had more tricky ones like you got minus they just chucked the minuses everywhere as well 
uh, minus five a x squared and then minus four x squared a and you know what makes it a like term and what makes it and did they worked in that concept for a long time and that really got me thinking about uh, an awful awful lot really of um why do students make mistakes with quite straightforward things you know why have i got top set 11 who uh are making mistakes with with corresponding and alternative alternate angles you know and and finding uh missing angles on on straight lines and thinking when i reflected on that after come back from shanghai i think it's because i missed out or didn't spend enough invest enough time on those slightly smaller points really and uh, that that make they, they're fine with they're fine with the ad- actually when it comes to the cut the white terms the adding bit is easy you're doing three plus two they learn that when they're five the new part the part where it is uh is 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 it new to students is what is a like term can you add them or can you not or can you subtract them and can you not and because they invested a lot of time on on that particular aspect they could go quite deep with it really they could go quite complex with it. the next lesson started with one term well even brackets was written down here minus x squared plus five plus four x cubed then it put plus and the next term was two and in brackets minus x squared plus five uh, plus four x cubed and is the bits in the brackets were like terms they, they, they figured out that they could add those together and get three brackets etc 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 because they had really worked on the concept of what makes a like term and what make what what is a make, make like term and what um what year group are we talking here paul that was um oh, that was uh, i think i was a, I'd probably say major our year sevens i think or... flipping heck now that Again, because that's um, if fully, that, might even year eight, but uh, yeah, uh, it's but, not not year eleven, that's for sure. No, and as I was going to say, like if if ever you went that deep, it would be with your year tens and year elevens. That certainly wouldn't be traditionally how how this topic would start. And I wonder what just to get into the kind of practicalities of the lesson. It, how many kids are in the class, and is this? Is it whole class questioning? Have the kids got mini whiteboards? What, what's actually going on whilst whilst these concepts are being um, investigated? So the uh, the classes we went to, there's about uh, 30-ish, 25 to 30-ish in the classes. Um, we were told that's not necessarily the case in old schools, but the ones we went to definitely was the case. And they didn't have mini whiteboards. When the Shanghai teachers came to the UK, they loved the mini whiteboards and they took some back with them to Shanghai. <laughs> um, nice. But it, it was a lot of it was um, the, so the teacher would pose the, pose a question and give students a bit of time to have a go. Uh, and then they would come back and then they would talk about it and say, you know, why, et cetera. And ask those sorts of questions. We had a, we had, sort of, uh, we had some translators next to us. We, so we missed a few things, but we, we picked up the, the general gist of what was, what was being asked a lot of the time and students would give reasons and sometimes the teacher would play devil's advocate and say hang on this sounds more sensible what this you know to do this why are you doing that even though the student was saying the right thing i suppose because they're trying to flush out those misconceptions i guess and the questions would be designed in a way so that it would highlight misconceptions and and, and uh, allow students to make misconceptions in that, in that sort of way and then there was a lot of stop start and stop starting so there was five minutes discussion followed by five minutes practice and five minutes discussion followed by five minutes practice that's because the the con the objective or, or or the content of that lesson was broken down into such minute steps and each step was covered explicitly and nothing was like i said nothing was left to chance nothing was skipped out and thought or, or and thought well they'll pick up that while they're talking about this or, or whatever each bit was was covered uh very 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 explicitly 
And you've, you've, you've mentioned when you were talking through your lesson on, on tree diagrams at the start of this interview that you've kind of brought a little bit of that back with you, if you will, because again, I would guess that you would, in the past would have jumped, like, like me, would have jumped quite far into the tree diagram topic at the start with, you know, banging the, the fractions on, multiplying them across and so on. Whereas when you talked about your plan, the start of it was getting across the, the, the concept of the tree diagram. Is that the kind of, the main thing that you've taken back with you. And I wonder what impact that's had on, on your teaching and your lessons. Yeah, I think that is probably one of of, uh, of the main things I've taken back is that constant just think about why do students uh, get stuck on things? And I give the example about um, alternate and corresponding angles. And I think that was another example where I thought about because that's it's quite a straight, you know, it's, 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 they get, it's quite a straightforward topic. Uh, you know, my students can solve quadratic simultaneous equations but they can't get get you know answer these questions on on angles between parallel lines and when i thought about those that that topic for example uh again it's probably another one of those ones where i go too quickly to, towards getting answers and calculations and i thought the lessons i've seen and i looked in textbooks and and looked in worksheets etc to figure out what was going on and the uh, a lot of a lot a big portion of my lessons probably before then would be on uh, yeah we'd learn what a corresponding angle is but then the the practice that students would do would be them working out missing angles between parallel lines and giving the reasons for it but the working out the angles part is quite straightforward it's either the same or it's 108 degrees take yes. away the that's, <laughs> yes. that's not the hard part why are we spending so, why was I spending so long focusing on getting students to practice that so when I uh, when I when I told that again I have to come back from Shanghai and. I reckon there's probably a lot of experienced teachers listening to this thinking, yeah, well, you do this anyway. That's what you should do. But I spent I spent the first lesson on this without, any, without really looking at any numbers or any kind of just working on what is, uh, what, what are corresponding angles and how do you spot them? And, uh, and and how do you how do you recognize them etc. So we talked about the definition of corresponding angles. We talked about where, uh, where they are and how to find them. And then when students practice this, they had about five or six diagrams, which all looked quite different. Um, and they'd all labeled A, B, and C etc. Uh, on, on the different nodes in the diagram. And the, the job was write down all the different all the pairs of corresponding angles you can find in this diagram. So you have to put down A, B, D, and and uh, C, E, F, etc. are corresponding. Uh, and some of the diagrams would be the first one was the traditional one where you've got parallel lines going horizontally and a diagonal going through it, cutting through both. The next one would be that the um, the the, tra the uh, what is it called the transversal uh, that is going horizontally and the parallel lines are going diagonally. Another one where the the line doesn't go through both the parallel lines; it kind of stops at one of them. So that's, that's yes. corresponding angles. Another one where there's two parallel lines crossing each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then asking the students, can you draw a diagram when you've got, we've got exactly three corresponding angles uh, or exactly two, et cetera, et cetera. And just getting to work on that concept of, of actually spotting corresponding angles and then alternate angles afterwards. Then once we've got the head around that, then we can start applying it and, and working out some missing angles. And um, I love to say that actually, that, 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 that year, first year 11 I did that with, did much better with that topic because they spent more time focusing on the new thing that they were learning than trying to get students just want to get answers I, I guess yes. a lot of time than, than just get calculating answers i'd love to say that um uh, in, in the exam they well actually in the exam they did they were great that quick but one of the trial exams there was another thing that tripped them up it was um it was a parallel line you might have seen a question before it was a parallel lines uh, and it had a uh, some lines going through it and what it made up an isosceles triangle uh, but it wasn't that the side on the left and the side of the right were equal. It was the one at the bottom and the right were equal. 
And most students have thought that the ones on the left and right were equal because yes, and put the label the wrong angle on it. So when I talked to him about that, the reason why was because the vast majority of the time in previous years, whenever they see an isosceles triangle, it's always been the same way up. And they just yes. come to expect that it's always the two bottom angles which are equal. So they haven't thought about that it might be the top one on the bottom right one, which is equal. And that's that, that really uh, led to me thinking firstly about, yeah, when we teach isosceles triangles, do we work on enough time on how to spot which sides are the same, which, if you know which angles are the same, and how to know which angles are the same, you spot which sides are the same. But also um, ensuring that the students get that variation, I suppose, the question, which is the, which is the massive thing in Shanghai is about question variation and how they vary the questions and very deliberately sequence questions in, that, in a way that promotes very, very deep thinking and very deep understanding. Got it. And I wonder, I don't know if this question is going to come out, come out the right way or not, but it's, it's something I, I always think about. Like, I would imagine that, that that technique will be absolutely ideal if you were if you were introducing something for the first time. So say, for example, you're corresponding in alternate angles. But I wonder how that approach works if it's a topic that you're revising with kids or, or say, for example, you've got a year 10 and you know for a fact that they've done adding fractions in, in years seven, eight and nine, probably even years five and six as well. But they haven't got it. Do they, When you try and introduce it in that much kind of minute detail, do the kids get frustrated in the fact that some of them will think, well, well, I, yeah, can I just actually get on to the, the questions that I need to be doing? You, you kind of you slow me down here. I, I'm not making the jumps I want to. Again, I, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but I just if the kids I guess what I'm trying to say is if the kids know what's coming next, even if they haven't kind of fully understood it. Is that quite frustrating for them to, to kind of take these these minute steps, no matter how important they are and you know they are? Do the kids get frustrated by it, if that makes any sense at all? No one's ever asked me that before uh, about revision lessons um, or revising topics. I guess you wouldn't necessarily, if if it's something that they've learned before, you, you, ideally you wouldn't necessarily need to go into that sort of detail again, really, because you're, you're, you're revising something. Uh, and those those small steps make up, build up the understanding of the topic or, or build up the topic, I guess. And so I haven't, I'll be honest with you, Craig, I haven't really tried it with, with, with revising a topic and I haven't really had the need to revise to do that when I've been revising a topic because uh, it's more so about building up an understanding. If I guess if there's a topic that we're revising and, yeah, students are completely clueless and have forgotten everything they've ever learned about it, then you might need to go back to the drawing board. Uh, but maybe actually um, you could probably skip a few steps because there's something in there. And, and maybe once you start start digging in again uh the, the things come back to them and you can probably just get through things a bit more it's a good question actually um well I, the reason i ask and this i mean this is a sign of how sad i am this i've been pondering this over christmas the fact that uh, in fact in christmas day i was actually thinking about this was that a lot of the time and i would go so far as to say the majority of the time um when we're teaching we're not teaching new stuff like it, i would say oh god uh, how many topics do we teach that are brand new to our year 11s or year 10s? And especially if you have a foundation group, the vast majority of year 10 and year 11 is, is essentially revising. But crucially, it's revising stuff that they haven't fully understood before. And I think that's a whole different side of planning. And this isn't for you to give like the perfect answer to, Paul, or anything. I'm just kind of throwing this out of my head and I guess kind of throwing it out to the listeners as well. That I think it's a whole different ball game when you're trying to plan revision lessons or lessons where you know kids have seen the material before because you don't have that luxury of surprise and i think 
that that kind of means you don't have that time to, to, to build in these steps because the kids already have some preconception and some, some knowledge of the topic, if that makes sense. And I just think I'd be interested with, with how the Shanghai teachers, what, how they would approach revision or how they would approach topics that kids have seen before but not necessarily fully grasped if that makes sense yeah well the um the the, the guy who came to to visit us uh tau his name he had he had some questions he had um some thoughts about revision and, and what he mentioned was that when whenever students uh learn something new they use it all the time so for example when once students have learned how to add fractions for example they lots and lots of top. They'll try and incorporate that skill into as many topics as they can. So when they collect like terms, they might have fraction coefficients, for example, um, yes. or, 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 or perimeter be fractions, etc. And uh, the, the the point is, well, they learn about collecting like terms. They know how to add fractions. Then why not give them some fractions to, to add in the middle of it? Which is, um, I, I probably spent quite a lot of time looking at resources quite a lot over over these last few years, um, and you've. It's very rare that I see uh, fractions or decimals in in the question when there's when it's not in the chapter title. So so very it's very rare that I'd say very rare just from what I've seen. I'm, I'm, no, uh, no, I think you're right. That um, unless it's unless the title of the lesson or the objective of the lesson is fractions, it's not many fractions pop up very often, really. Yes. But the, the Tower's point was that the students are constantly revising all the time. The things that they've learned or, or regularly because they keep trying to incorporate all the other topics into into into, um, into the new things that they're learning in that sense got it that makes perfect sense and what what about so they're kind of two massive things that you've, you've taken away from from shanghai the the kind of planning the minute steps and also the the, the variety um of, of kind of examples and things that, that you give to make sure kids have got that that deep grasp of it what what about what about tokyo paul what what, what did you learn there because that, that's something that perhaps isn't in the kind of maths headlines as much as Shanghai. So can you just tell us a little bit about that trip? And again, what, what, what were your key takeaways from that? That one was, uh, it, it, you know, on the surface, it was very, very different, but it shared some very quite uh, common principles. Um, the main purpose of the Tokyo trip was to look at problem solving in mathematics. And we also looked at lesson study as well. But um, the main thing from a maths point of view was was problem solving. And the, their, their approach to problem solving was something that I hadn't really seen before. Um, I'd only been teaching, I guess, for around eight, eight years. So, and I know that some of the more experienced teachers on that trip were more familiar with, with their approach to problem solving. But uh, until then, from my experience in in the UK, problem solving it tends to, tended to be a means to apply previous learning. So students learn a new skill, like adding fractions. They become competent in it, and then they extend this by uh, applying what they learn to answer some problems. Yes. Uh, and this is what I've, you know, I've seen this in textbooks and resources and schemes of work. And that's just how it's, uh, it's, it's structured. And uh, people talk about get, developing fluency and then problem solving. But not everyone says that it has to be then. But, uh, that, you know, that, that's, that's the message I hear quite a lot. I'm not saying that's, 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 whether it's right or wrong. All, all I know at the moment is it's, it's different to what I saw in Japan. Uh, so I, I can't commit yet to, 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 to any, what, what is better in that sense, really. But sure. it was more of an eye opener more than anything else. So in Japan, rather than problem solving being a means to apply previous learning, it was a means to derive new learning. So the problem would come first. They would learn something new and then they would practice it afterwards. 
with some quite straightforward questions. Uh, you can, uh, the opposite way around in that sense. So a typical lesson would start off similar to the Shanghai one. In fact, you'd have a five, 10 minute review of previous learning that related to the things that they're going to do that lesson. So it might be two or three questions that they've done before from the previous lesson. Um, and then students would be presented with a, a single problem that they would spend about 30 minutes exploring and dedicating that time to that one single problem. Uh, and that would be made up, made up of maybe five, 10 minutes where the students would have a go, uh, either themselves, individually or in groups, to change from teacher to teacher or class to class. And then usually um, they, they, they would sort of, um, the teacher would go around, uh, also the, the teacher would ask them to explain their methods with a combination of their ideas, with a combination of pictures, diagrams and words. And while they're doing this, the teacher would go around the room and look at what all the students were doing and get an idea, an idea what, what each student was trying. And not necessarily help the students, but just make a note of that and plan out the next part of the lesson. So what would happen in the lesson next was the, uh, the teacher would bring the class together and he would or she would um, pick students to describe their method or come up to the board and write their method or their idea or their approach or whatever. And they would, the teacher would, would deliberately order it in the way that, that in a particular way that he's seen and, and wants to order it so that it, it unravels the concept i suppose uh and and gets deeper and deeper or or, or or progresses it in a certain way that that they want and then while the the students are coming up and explaining things uh, and explaining methods the um the, the teacher wouldn't stop there with the show and tell side of things they they would then question the methods so if they've got two methods on the board they would, you would ask uh, why is how is this one similar to the last one? How is it different to this one here? These numbers, we've seen these numbers before. Where have we seen these numbers in this method over, over here? And forensically go through the methods. Each each calculation, each number, this three here, what does that three represent? This calculation of three times the four times the five. Why have we done that? This two here, that's not in the diagram, in the question. Where's that two come from? Every little bit was very forensically done and then compared and contrasted uh, between the methods as well. What, what which Out of these methods... Which what's the which ones will always work? Which ones will only sometimes work? Why would they only sometimes work like that? What is the core principle that all these methods have in common? Now we've now, now we've done all that. What can we learn from this this exploration? What what, what new thing can we do? Uh, can we learn from that? And it was a it was a master of dialogue and a master of of and it, they also did uh, they didn't rub anything out on the boards. They had these really long boards, so everything. What appeared and was discussed in lesson stayed on the board so that they could constantly keep referring back to the previous parts of the lesson and, and link things up. And once students have you know, got their head around whatever it was they were looking at, they write a little bit of reflection, what they've learned from it, and then they might give two or three more questions uh, to apply what they've learned to, uh, uh, to uh, at the end of the lesson. Can I just ask at this point, but this is again absolutely fascinating. So if I've if I'm understanding you right here, this is. This is new knowledge that knowledge they don't have prior to taking on the these kind of long form problems that they kind of acquire or derive for themselves throughout the course of solving the problem. Would that be right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Flipping. And can you give me an example? Like, well, what are we talking here? Like, are we are we talking problems where kids couldn't add fractions before, but then the problem requires them to add fractions or solve equations? Is it is it as kind of explicit as that or are are the more kind of subtle skills that have built upon prior knowledge? OK, so this comes down to the difference in what we regard and what they regard as a problem. 
So um, if you, often we, we see problems as being things that are worded or very, very complex or yes. five mark questions, etc. Uh, in the lessons we went to in Japan and the, the, the lectures we went to in Japan, they, what they define as a problem is anything that you don't know how to, to do yet, really, I suppose. So, for example, one, one lesson that we went to, the, some of the teachers said that's not a problem. The, the question was, uh, the problem was 72 divided by three. And yeah, it doesn't look like a problem at all. That's, that's, that's not a problem that we would see uh, necessarily in, in the UK. But if up until that point, students only have learned how to do division by using the yes. times table facts. Well, the three times tables, they only know that up to 36. So if they're asked to divide something beyond the times tables facts, they've got a problem on their hands. Yes. Another one was um, find, like find the area of a circle. If you've only ever learned how to find the area of shapes of straight sides, and you're suddenly given a circle to ask to find the area of, you've got a problem on your hands. You don't know, you, you don't have an immediate solution to that. And the, the, the key every lesson was, and they asked the students every lesson is, how can we use the things that we know to tackle this and, or to break this down? How can we apply the, our previous knowledge to this? And after that process of breaking it down, the, 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 the idea was that right, we don't want to do this every time we want to divide 72 by three or whatever. So what can we learn? From this process, from this process, so that we don't have to do all this again in depth afterwards, and there'd be a, a key point out of it. So they would they would use that to derive the, the algorithms or derive the the key formulas or whatever. But the process to get lean up to it helps students really see why uh, and think creatively about mathematics. Flipping heck. And am I right in saying this isn't oh, like a, something they do irregularly? This this will be a consistent part of the way that l math lessons will be delivered. Would that be right? I'm, I'm going to be cautious uh, and, and say uh, that was the experience. That's the experience sure. we saw. Like the, the thing to bear in mind with both the Shanghai and the Japan one was that we were taken to particular schools. Particular teachers. Yes. They knew, what, they knew we were coming. It wasn't a random sample of schools. Um, sure. But that, that, so I'm always keen to say that this, from what, my experience, I saw this, and this is what we saw there. I, I, I'm, it, it might be typical of the rest of the country, but I, I don't necessarily know based on what, what, I, what I saw. I, I think that sometimes when, it's, when we talk about that, it can devalue the observations. But when you're in a school and you, you, you want to observe some teachers to improve your practice, you don't take a random sample. You, yes. you go and see outstanding teachers or the best teachers. And when you're in the lesson, you're not thinking, how representative is this of the rest of the school? You're thinking, right, what can I learn from this? So it doesn't matter yes. necessarily whether this was typical of, of Tokyo and Japan. What I think the most important thing is, what can we learn from it? Of course, and and directly following on from that. So is this something you've tried out since you've been back, Paul? And, and what's been the results? Uh, I've, I've tried uh, a little bit. Uh, I've, I've tried a few. I've tried to replicate a few of the lessons that I saw uh, in, in many ways in the UK, just to see how students respond to it. And um, I, I, was, I was quite. And, and because I've got a, a 11 class and we are very exam focused, I've. I, 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 it's a bit of a risk to try and change sure. too much, really, with, with, with those. Um, but the, I guess in the lessons where I've, I've tried it, even with my own year 11s every now and again. What surprised me is the amount of depth that we can go into with a particular question. But what also, what also surprised me, I think the main thing I've taken away from, from Tokyo is the, the forensic questioning of methods and numbers. Because just because students can tell you the calculation or the equation or the method or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that they know what every single one of those parts of it means. And I was quite surprised the first time I'd, I tried doing something like this. 
um, it was a it was a question. It was a lesson on um, finding the volume of an L-shaped prism, and I, that was a lesson I saw in Tokyo. And when I, when I asked students, what does what does this two come from? What is this three times five times six etc.? I was surprised at how hesitant students were and how unsure students were in, in many cases. And even when they could tell me the calculation, they couldn't necessarily tell tell me confidently what each power of the calculation meant and why you did that with a calculation, really. So I think it's the forensic question more so. And also the comparing of different methods, uh, which which is um, uh, probably taken away, uh, the pedagogy more so than the structure. Got it. Okay, Paul. So a um, couple more things I just want to want to touch upon before I, f- I finally let you go is um, you do you, you've mentioned you do a lot of, of training of teachers and running workshops, whether it's on bar modeling or or on um, questioning. And I often think this is, is it's an overlooked area of CPD, this, that the kind of trainer themselves, because they're so, so important to to the success. And often they may have lots of good material and things, but if the delivery is not right or that the setup's not right or, or it, that message can be lost. And often teachers, it's not just teachers like yourself who, who go around to different schools to deliver this training. Often um, the kind of thing I'm talking about here is just just within a department, doing five minutes in a departmental meeting or just sitting down with an NQT or whatever and just just talking through pedagogy and so on. So. I wonder if in your experience, what, what what kind of makes a good trainer of teachers, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's uh, after, after, after starting off um, teaching students and then and training teachers to teach students and, and now we're uh, then training trainers, how to train teachers to teach. Now, so now <laughs> I feel like I'm in set in education a little bit with all these layers we go into, <laughs> I suppose. I guess, uh, I guess the main bit of advice really is that many of the things that make people a good teacher can make them a good trainer really uh you obviously don't shout at adults and tell them off for being naughty or anything like that but the the presence the enthusiasm the uh the, the presentation skills all those sorts of things uh put you in the right in the right um uh, in, in the right skill set to be a good good presenter i guess the the, the most important thing i'll probably say to to present confidently and and present something that people find useful and uh, impactful and, and uh, they'll take something away from is for the, the whoever is training the, and leading the workshop or the aspect of it in CPD or the department is to to have a, a knowledge of the thing they're talking about that goes beyond what you're going to say and what you're going to talk about. Probably just like when I was messing up my year nine lesson in that <laughs> sense, really, but. Uh, and, and it goes back to that point about to fill up a cup of water, you need a bucket of water. The um, I think when people, and including myself, the biggest thing I, I, I found when I first started delivering training was I felt like an imposter a lot of times. Yes. I, I was looking out into a room or an audience thinking most of these people have been teaching longer than I've been alive. And they've probably forgotten more than I know what gives me the right to stand up and, and speak to them about anything. But if if you've got if something interesting worth saying, or there's something that they will find interesting or useful and you know your stuff about it and you've got a good knowledge of that, then there's no way at all you're a poster. If, if you have those things, then they will find it useful and they will learn something from it. doesn't matter how long you've been teaching. You, we can always, it's one of those professions you can always learn new things and you don't have to be sick to get better. And that's the, 
that's a key thing for anyone who is going to present for the first time. If it's if it's useful, if it's interesting, and you know your stuff, then you, you'll then it's worth doing. And you're not. I, I, it's, it's right for you to share that idea, and it's right for you to present that idea uh, to other, other people. The key thing is that being ready for if if people ask you questions about about it, or, or quiz you on it, or challenge you on it in any kind of way, that can be quite unsettling the first time. But if you if you've done your your homework and you've done your research you or you've you've read up on it and you've tried it yourself or you're, you're confident with it then then you'll have the answers to your fingertips or you, you you'll be confident to say that's a that's a good point i haven't really thought about that can i come back to you another time um but you, you're feeling confident because you've generally know you've, you've exhausted everything you possibly you possibly can to to pay yourself for this they've asked a really good question there that is that I, I, that you, you you're confident that you you, you haven't you haven't missed through neglect you've, you've missed because it's it's a it's a, a really good question yeah i think that that's that's fantastic advice that that paul and i mean i'd add to that that i don't know if you agree with me here but and this isn't to put anyone off um doing this at all um it, it can be a tough crowd can teachers and i think a lot of that depends on the on the circumstances if i mean i've i've run many a course where 30 percent of the audience would do anything not to be there and that's when it's difficult and that's when you get the kind of cynical eyes on you and sometimes you can get the awkward questions and so on and this is just the minority and whenever i give advice to kind of people running training i almost kind of treat it as as a lesson like in a lesson you all the kids aren't going to like you all the kids aren't going to kind of want to listen to you or whatever you're not going to get your message across to all the kids it's it's trying to almost please the majority and as as you say as long as you've done your research uh, as long as you know your stuff and as long as I think I think the other thing I'd add is as long as you've experience of the stuff that that you're teaching that, that you're talking about I think that's crucial and this is what's coming across here from from you when you're talking about um sharing your when you're doing your workshops on questioning or bar modeling the fact that you've tried it out and you can share personal experience that goes above and beyond what a teacher can get from a textbook or a youtube video or something like that i think that's when training is really effective i, I don't know if, if that's something you'd agree with yeah absolutely absolutely i gotta say i i do find that uh behavior management can be more difficult in a training session with adults than it can be with students you know getting, especially when you visit a, a visit a school um and they, they all know each other i can't tell i can't shout them and tell them off, you know. so you, you learn you learn tricks and skills to 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 help uh with those situations like standing near people or or, or starting to speak and pausing and waiting for people etc or I, I, dylan william presented it at trinity once and he, he would very explicitly say i'm gonna put my hand up and i want everyone to do you know you, you pick up those sorts of things along the way just like you do with with, with teaching really we um we, we have a like, we've got a, a twilight for about bar modeling which we, we deliver to schools when they want to introduce it to the whole school and it got to the point where uh, we had so much interest uh, in it from different schools and all over the country that it wasn't no longer feasible for, for, for me to deliver it all the time. So the, the hard part then was trying to train other people up to deliver that particular session to other people. But, they, but what's difficult about that is I've written a session and I've, I've, I've read and dealt with far more that what's, than what's in that session. Yes. And how do you, uh, how, how do you upskill the people who are going to deliver it so that they 
not only know the content of the session, but know what actually what made up the session. You know, the, the little subtleties yes. and the rationale. Why is this? Well, why is this slide what it is, and why does this follow it? Why is it in this particular order? What are the things that people always ask every single time when you do this, or what are the little small anecdotes that help make up the day? those sorts of things? And we have had to um, uh, have a train session for the trainers, I suppose you could call it. And what I like to think of that as is you go on a website page and you see the product on the website page. You see the, the content website page. But what's what you don't see is the coding behind it. And what's important for any uh, for, for this train the trainer thing that we do is exposing to the, the people to the coding behind the session. What makes up what yes. the detail that makes up the session so that they've got that bucket of water uh, to, to, fill, to fill a cup. And um, that's that's really key. You know, be prepared that a lot of things that you might read and about and work on, you might not necessarily use, but pick out the things that are which will, which will develop the teachers in that sense. I know. I think you're spot on, and I think again, I draw a lot of parallels with with putting lessons together here. That I've spoke about this many a time on on the podcast. That a good lesson isn't a good lesson for everybody. And again, if if I if I ask one of my colleagues if you got anything good on adding fractions, and they say, yeah, I've got a great lesson. If I just take it and don't study it, don't again ask why that slides there. What what what's the story behind this? If I just try and deliver it in the lesson, it'd be an absolute disaster because training sessions, by definition, are designed for the person who's put them together. And if you're going to be wanting to use them and replicate them, you've got to adapt them to your style, or you've got to have done that level of research behind it. So. Again, just like you could for one particular teacher, it's the best lesson in the world. For one tra- particular trainer, it's the best training session in the world. But if someone else tries to do it without putting in that kind of groundwork, it's going to be a disaster. So I think you've got to put in as much, if not more, preparation into doing a session than you would do for a lesson, if that makes sense. A- absolutely. Absolutely. I've got, I got to say, uh, doing this with working with the other trainers who now deliver a session, they it has improved the session really because they bring yes. a whole bunch of different perspectives. They, they I think they do, they deliver it in, in, in better than I do now because they've they've got the content, they've got the rationale, but they've got a whole bunch of different experiences and perspectives that they can bring to it really, which is I think is is just like sharing lessons. It's absolutely key. The, the, the big thing, the two big things that people tend to do wrong, not not do wrong, but uh, um, mistakes that people make, I suppose. Well, I still seems doing something wrong, I guess. Uh, with, with training sessions is is one is starting writing your training session by sitting down and starting to write your powerpoints before thinking about the content just like a, yes. just like a lesson you plan your content first and then actually make, make your powerpoint last thing you do uh, really and the other thing is is i always recommend learn your powerpoint inside out and if you've got lots of animations in there and lots of which require a lot of clicks learn what you know the order of them and except so you can spend <laughs> yes. most more of your time facing the audience been facing the uh, the slides yeah i think that's great advice and i I think again the thing the only thing i'd add to that is the only way to get good at this just like teaching is is through experience and just seize the opportunities because it's I don't know if you agree, Paul, but it's it's a great buzz teaching teachers. I I absolutely love uh, whether it's delivering workshops or working with people who are gonna gonna give workshops. But the only way to get good at it is just to do it. And there's loads of opportunities. As I've mentioned, I started off just doing little five minute things within departmental meetings. But there's a wonderful op- I mean, a wonderful opportunity in the kind of today's climate 
conferences is the the maths conferences that that LaSalle and Mark McCourt run. Just if you if you're feeling up to it, if you if you've perhaps done a little you know twenty minute slot in in your maths department and you've got something good to say and that's gone down well, just stick your name down for something like that. Or if you're fortunate enough to be part of a hub or a teaching school or something, do it because whilst whilst we're whilst I well it's more me me than you. Whilst I'm saying that teachers can be kind of a tricky audience, the vast majority are just grateful that people are willing to share their time and share their ideas and so on and it's it can be such a rewarding experience to complement the rewarding experience that you get from from teaching kids so yeah i think the main message certainly that i'm taking from this is is do your preparation flipping out you've really got to prepare for it but but do it because it's it's a wonderful opportunity if you'd agree with that point absolutely absolutely the the uh, very first i just talk about speaking to your department I've got to say, I do. I still get nervous. Present, I probably do every week. I still get nervous presenting to people. So don't worry about being nervous. But I probably get more nervous presenting to my colleagues. The very first yes. time I delivered anything to any adults was when I was an NQT in my first school, and I did something on smart boards. And I thought, what on earth are they listening <laughs> to me for? I'm little younguns here coming in, They're talking to them about smart boards. They'll all know everything. But actually, um, and when it, you know the first five minutes, I was just absolutely terrified. Um, but it's only when I actually got into it, that I realized actually, yeah, there are, there were things that I, that I knew that they hadn't picked up yet about smart boards and they, they, they've, well, they, they might be hearing me, <laughs> but they seem to find it useful. <laughs> uh, and they had questions about smart boards, et cetera. So you know, always, there's always things that people can pick up from. I probably recommend, like you said, do something to your department first to get a bit of experience with it. You know, volunteer to present a, like a, a speed. Uh, learning thing or a mini yes. workshop at, you know and teachers aren't going to boo you off or anything like that <laughs> to you. and uh, yeah enjoy it because it's 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 good fun and it's if you teach your class you, you improve 30 students but if you can t- improve 30 teachers or give 30 teachers uh, they, they've got 30 students and so just think you know think about uh, the benefits in that sort of way there as well fantastic superb um i just want to touch upon and this is the kind of last main thing um i want to speak about paul and that that's the white rose maths hub as an entity because i think i don't know i don't know if this is a fair thing to say but i think hubs generally have have a mixed reputation um at best whereas the white rose maths hub is probably and i'm biased because i'm from the north even though it's the wrong side of the pennines it's, it's possibly the, the most well-known um hub in the country what with the scheme of work being downloaded god knows how many thousands of times from tears for for primary school and so on so i wonder if you could just just tell us a little bit about the work the white rose maths hubs and i, I guess what i'm most interested in is what you consider to be the most exciting projects that the hubs involved in that perhaps listeners aren't aware of and that they could possibly benefit from i think there's so there's, there's so many which is probably what makes the the white rose maths hub so so exciting really the i guess what what drives the White Rose Maths Hub is there's, there's, there's the systems of it, but it's the people within it in particular. You, you've, I know you, Craig, you've met the, the lead for the hub, Tony Staniff, who is relentless with his passion for mathematics <laughs> yes. and teaching to the point where if, if a day goes by where he doesn't send me an email, I'm, 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 I'm worried. You know, I'm the police <laughs> to go around his house worried that something's happened. His work ethic is, is second to none. And then there's everyone who works for the hub. We've got a great bunch of primary teachers who work for the hub and just love teaching and working with adults so much. The second, they've got secondary ones as well, similar. And uh, even down to the admin team, you know, they, they, I don't know how they sleep at night because they <laughs> concern themselves and they are with this fine details of everything. I want to get everything absolutely perfect. So when, when people ask what makes a, a hub, 
I think that's what makes the hub really the passion of the people in the team, but also the we've been quite blessed with a number of schools in the area who aren't part of the hub in a formal sense, but do but are engaged and are enthusiastic and, and get involved with all sorts of things. I guess the uh, the, the schemes I work have been uh, a, a very popular uh, all over the country. I can't, I can't believe believe sometimes um, I'm, I'm, I go to things. And not as not as a teacher. I, I, I meet so because you, you'll find this when you go to anywhere, teachers gravitate together. Like yes, <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, a wedding, somebody end up on the teacher table. Indeed, you know, <laughs> teachers. And you, you mention something. Oh, I'm from Halifax. Oh, do you know the White Rose Hub? Like, they've downloaded the schemes at work, and uh, that's that's quite a, it's quite a, a, a quite flattering uh, in, in many ways. But that's that's down to the how much the the team who put them together how much their dedication they put into that and, and the, how much they sought advice from so many schools and so many uh, bits of research and so many other people who developed schemes. They didn't just do it off the top of their head. They, they did the homework and they put it together and they've, they've driven that really uh, quite, quite heavily, really. I think the, the other things, you know, the support that there's, there's the, the concrete pictorial abstract and the bar modeling and the, the Shanghai stuff and the question variation and, and, the, and those sides of things. There's a national projects as well that the maths hub do, like the textbook, um, a pilot project and the, uh, investing in, in particular members of staff to become mastery specialists and, uh, all those sorts of things. There's a post 16, scene sort of 16 sort of stuff that, um, that we get we get uh, expert practitioners involved with that and the, the re- we've got a great school who work work with us on the reason side of things and they lead that sort of stuff and Bradford College there's, there's someone from there who works part-time and, and works with us a little bit and it, we're, we're blessed with a number of enthusiastic people who are passionate about working together to improve things and that's I think that's the most exciting thing more than anything but there's a, there's a, shot, there's a, there's a common philosophy there and a common belief there that everyone can get better at maths there's no there's nothing that stops you to get getting better at maths if you are dedicated to it and that's the message that rings out again and again and again is everyone can get better at maths everyone can achieve everyone can do maths and the more we can the more we can get people on board with that and i know all the other maths hubs as well are share that sort of that, that belief as well the the more enthusiastic people can be about maths it upsets me when i go to the addresses and i say i'm a math teacher and straight away oh i hate maths yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i hated maths at school and I, I really hope that when when i'm old and gray and i go to the addresses and i tell them i'm a maths teacher they, they, they hug me because it's the best <laughs> subject ever <laughs> <laughs> nice and if um if we have a secondary school teacher listening to this um who uh, maybe hasn't heard of the white rose maths or maybe just doesn't know too much about them is there anywhere in particular, any one thing you direct them to just to kind of get them started in terms of learning about some of the work that you do? I know it's very difficult to pick one thing out, but I'm just thinking if you because obviously for the primary school teachers, they've all the schemes of learning and so on. But if we've got a secondary school maths teacher, where, where would you point them to, Paul? Now, I'll put a link to whatever you say on the uh, in the show notes. Absolutely. Well, the first thing I recommend is that they check if they don't live in Yorkshire, check out the, the local hub and uh, see what the local hub is doing um, in, in their area. And that's the, that's always the first thing we recommend to, to any school. Yes. Uh, if they are interested in the White Rose Maths Hub, there's our website page, um, which if you just Google White Rose Maths Hub, it, it comes up. It's one of the top ones. Uh, and I should know off the top of my head. I should have a tattooed on my arm. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, I'll send you the link later. And on the, you'll, you'll see 
there's links to the schemes I work for primary. There's schemes I work for secondary being developed in a very similar sort of uh, veins to the primary ones. There's uh, links to uh, lots of resources on tests for for problem solving, but introducing topics and etc. and assessments. And there's uh, links as well to a, a whole array of training sessions that uh, we deliver in partnership with the Training to Teaching School um, on sessions on things like bar modeling and questioning and um, and problem solving and things like that, but also uh, sessions as well on topics. So if it, if you're a non-specialist teacher and you teach mathematics, you know, if you're if you're a P teacher or a geography teacher and you do a half timetable mathematics, uh, you teach a topic for the first time, there's workshops on that. Even if you're taught things before, but you're looking for new ways or, or different ways or more depth ways to, to present things, then you might find something interesting in one of those as, as well. But the key thing is check out your local hub and uh, check out uh, our website page as well. Superb. Fantastic. Well, final question from me, Paul, because I've kept you far too long here. And this is just kind of a, a bit of a reflection one. I like to ask this just at the end of each interview. Um, how many years into your teaching are you now, Paul, just to give a bit of context? Uh, I think this is my ninth year, I think now. Nice. Ninth, ninth year. Fantastic. Well, I wonder if there's anything that you wished you'd known when you started teaching that, that you know now. Um. Oh, that's a, good, that's a really good. That's a really good question. Uh, I suppose uh, everything. <laughs> in many ways, I get. I guess. Uh, I think those. I think the the the, the key things I probably wish I known were um, what what to focus on. I suppose. I suppose, and what not to focus on. Um, those little small things that we talked about earlier that students make misconceptions on. I wish. I, I wish I knew back then. Uh, all the misconceptions that students have uh, in, in particular, really. Um, and that would have sped up uh, and put things in more depth. There was a um, there was a teacher who said Tony was my NQT mentor. Uh, in my second and third year, I'd, the teacher in the classroom next door to me um, was uh, a lady called Sue, and she was a bit of like an unofficial mentor. I always wondered why she was right year, sort of miles and miles behind me with the scheme of work every single time. I said, <laughs> teacher, for however, however long, why, I mean, why is he being so slow with this? But it's because <laughs> the amount of experience that she'd had from teaching things again and again, she knew all the little bits and she knew all the misconceptions. And because of that, she broke things down much more. And I think if, you've, if I had that knowledge to start with, uh, I, you know, things would um, have... I, yeah, I've, I probably have uh, gone to more depth quicker, I suppose. Got it. That's a fantastic answer. Well, we've reached the point where I, I shut up for a bit and hand over to you for, you for your big three. So this can be three websites, blog posts, books, anything you like that you direct our listeners to. And as ever, I'll put links to these in the show notes. So what are you going for, Paul, for your big three? Uh, so uh, what, if you are interested in uh, bar modeling um, and you want to get started with it, there's uh, Char Forston's uh, got a book uh, called Modern, Model, Draw, uh, Model Drawing in Mathematics. And that was that's a good one for getting yourself started. It gives you practical examples and has um, questions for teachers, verbal questions for teachers to ask the students while they're doing examples together. So I probably recommend uh, that one. If you're interested in questioning, um, uh, and sort of the kind of practical uh, practicalities of questioning and questioning technique and uh, how to pose questions and different types of questions. It's not a maths book, but it's a more teach and learn uh, one. There's Trevor Carey's book, which is uh, questioning and explaining in classrooms. I think that's a, is a quite a useful one for me um, in starting my career. And then if you're interested in teaching and learning in general and just how the students learn things and understand things, then 
There's a, a book by Douglas Newton uh, called uh, Teaching for Understanding, and that's it's give me give me a few fresh things to think about um, with 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 teaching, and particularly with mathematics as well. That's another gener- generic one, not necessarily math specific. That's super. What a great selection they are. And Paul, just to say, just just to wrap up here. Firstly, thanks for for giving up your time to be on the show. As as ever, I've kept my guests far too long, so <laughs> please please forgive me for that. But I just just want to thank you because the we've covered here some concepts that again I. I feel I'm reasonably experienced as a teacher, but I, I don't have enough knowledge on on things like bar modeling. I haven't done the research that you've done on questioning. I've heard lots about Shanghai and and, and Tokyo, but I, I didn't know enough about it. It's nice to speak to somebody who trains up teachers because that's something that's often overlooked. And, and obviously the maths hubs as well, which I think are, are misunderstood. So to bundle them all together in, in one interview, just... Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for your, for your time uh, and your generosity and sharing your experience. I've, I've loved every second it's been, of it. It's been fun. You, you're, you're, you're uh, wow. You, it's like being grilled by Jeremy Paxman. You know, you, <laughs> wow. It's very I'll take It's been good fun. Thank you, Craig. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> so, there you have it. There's my interview with Paul Rowlandson. I really, really hope you enjoyed that one. I got so much out of it. He's such a great guy, Paul, and just fascinating to hear him talk in depth about bar modeling, questioning, and so on. Um, In terms of takeaways for this episode, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going for two. The two mini ones, I I promise you. Um, The first thing is, I loved it when Paul was talking about how he plans his lesson and how he thinks really, really carefully about the key skills that are needed to master a topic. And he spends loads of time on them before delivering the main kind of obvious content. And this could be whether it's labeling the size of a triangle in trig and doing loads and loads and loads of examples of that or drawing lots of tree diagrams for probability and just getting kids familiar with the concept before they actually dive into popping the fractions on and knowing whether to multiply and add and so on. And look, this is one of those things that's dead obvious when I say, well, when you say it and when you hear it, to focus on those fundamentals. But I know it's something that certainly earlier on in my career, I wasn't doing regularly enough. And apologies for kind of overstating this point, but I think it's absolutely crucial that if you don't hammer those basics, those things that seem obvious, those things that you kind of take for granted that the kids will do, and you dive straight into the obvious content, the kind of main skills that are involved that that you want to teach the students, then if a problem occurs with one of these so-called basic skills, but it occurs later on, so it occurs when you're trying to impart new knowledge on students, then you've got major problems because whilst you know that it's only a small thing that the children can't do, in their heads, they can't do the whole topic. And I mean, I've told this story um, many times. Um, In fact, I think on the podcast I've spoken about how I messed my kids up uh, my year 11s a couple of years ago with, with learning of vectors but another example is, is histograms <laughs> again with this same poor year 11 class god and um, the parents will be suing me if they hear this but I was teaching them teaching them histograms and I just assumed that they could plot the scale um, absolutely fine on the y-axis. I hadn't done any kind of preparation for that whatsoever. I just assumed that that was a skill that been, they'd been doing for years. And I focused all my attention on frequency density, knowing how to calculate it, knowing how to interpret it and so on. And we, we did an exam question as, as part of the lesson. And sure enough, um, most of the kids are absolutely fine with it. And, and thankfully, everyone nailed the frequency density. But two students had actually plotted um, 
the scale on the y-axis wrong because often frequency densities involves nasty little decimals and they just hadn't scaled it properly so when they compared their finished histogram to mine theirs didn't look quite like mine and i knew i could tell straight away what the problem was and i tried to address it but in their heads they couldn't do histograms and that was such a massive thing for them and it was really hard for me to restore their confidence so again, uh, apologies for, for kind of treading over old, gra old ground, but it's, it's something I believe in absolutely passionately this, that you've got to absolutely hammer all the baseline and um, so-called kind of obvious skills that kids need to know before you move on to the content. And just to also, um, I said I'd be quick on this takeaway, but I'm, I'm getting a bit carried away here. Just to also go over that point that I, I kind of came, uh, brought up with Paul, because this is something I've been obsessing over with recently. And that's the difficulty of teaching stuff that kids already have some kind of knowledge or, or preconception about. And I did a rough calculation and I reckon 70% of the lessons I teach involve teaching something that kids already, in theory already know or already have some awareness of. And just have a little think about that. Like think of your lessons that you've got coming up this week. I mean, the chances are if you're teaching year nine or year 10 or year 11, then some of those lessons you'll be teaching essentially are revision lessons or they're kind of going over old ground, ready to start and push them on a little bit. And I think they're hard to plan. I really think those lessons are hard to plan. And it goes back to this thing, that this thing that I'm, I'm mentioning here. So, say tree diagrams. If kids have never met a tree diagram before, then it's probably gonna be all right. You're hammering them saying, right, let's draw loads of tree diagrams to, before we even start. You've got to get your head around how to set these up and so on. But imagine if you've got a year 11 class and these kids have done tree diagrams in year nine and year 10. Now, when you then start planning that lesson and you're aware, as Paul said, that you need to hammer all this kind of baseline content before you get to calculating with tree diagrams, you have to absolutely hammer setting them up, interpreting them and so on. Well, that suddenly gets a whole load more difficult when kids have got knowledge of tree diagrams because half of them are going to want to rush on and say, sir, sir, we know all this. Let's get stuck into the other stuff. Or half of them may well have a negative um, kind of association with tree diagrams thinking, oh, God, or I couldn't do these last year. What's going to make me do these this year? And this is something I'm going to be thinking about lots uh, over the course of the next year or so and hopefully discussing it on the podcast. The difficulties of planning when kids already know something. And you've still got to go over it and you've still got to give them the practice and help them develop the fluency. But when they've already met that topic before, I think that's very, very difficult to plan. And I've got a few theories about how to take it on, but that's something I'm going to be working on. And the final thing I just that I kind of took from, from the interview, I mean, I took loads from it and I thought it was fascinating talking about the Singapore bar, bar model. And the other thing is just teacher training and just a little thought I want you, want you uh, to leave you with. Um, I certainly found when I first started teaching students that you only really know a topic, whether it be fractions, whether it be aerial perimeter, you only really know it when you teach it for the first time, because that's when you start to discover all the misconceptions people have. And that's when you've got to really um, hammer your explanations and so on. And if that's true of teaching, I think it's true of um, when you're training teachers as well, that you're only really sure whether your ideas work or have validity or that you're communicating them properly or that you understand them yourself when you try and share that experience and that knowledge with others. And I'd really, really, really recommend you to do it. And as, as myself and Paul were discussing, just, just start off small, just in a maths departmental meeting or something like that. Just share, share an idea and get feedback on it and start a discussion. 
because it really tests your idea out. It really makes sure you you know it well, and also and often it leads to an improvement of that uh, of that idea or that concept. And also teachers, I, I know I was a bit kind of negative saying that there are trick tough crowd teachers, which which they can be sometimes, but the vast majority are going to be very welcoming that that you're willing to share your time and your knowledge with them. So I'd really recommend giving giving that a go. Anyway, that's more than enough for me. And um, Paul was kind enough to stick around at the end of the interview to share a puzzle. And I hope you haven't put your pen and paper away yet because it is another bar modeling activity. So let me hand back to Paul for the podcast puzzle. So this is a puzzle to test your bar modeling skills. Peter and Jane share some money. Peter gets a fifth as much as Jane does. Jane gets £20 more than Peter. How much does Peter get? So there you have it. Another podcast done and dusted. I really hoped you enjoyed it. All that remains for me to do is to once again thank my excellent guest, Mr. Paul Rowlandson, for sharing his time and his expertise with us and to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. I shall return in the near future with another guest from the wonderful world of education. But until then, thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourselves and bye for now. <laughs>